Hey, this is Rich Howard, and you are listening to the Dungeon Master's Block. Welcome to the Block Party. Welcome back to another episode of the Dungeon Map. Well, actually, welcome back to the Player's Block, where we focus on the player, the most important person in the game, the only person able to create heroic characters, bring memorable stories to life, and undermine any DM's well-laid plans. I'm one of your hosts, DM and player, Mitch. And I'm DM and player, Chris. And we want to welcome you to a special episode of the Players Block, where we today are going to focus on the players. And so we have uh, our guest, Richard Howard. You might remember him from the Aquatic Campaigns episode. He's back. He's going to be joining us and talking about all things player today. We're going to talk about today how to be the best player you can in all aspects of gaming. Being a DM, I know I have brought a lot of things to the table as being a player. I'm able to help create a story both for my own character, where I get to basically DM my own player, uh, as well as help further the story of the DM, who, as I know and as you guys know and as Mitch knows, puts a ton of time into this. And so we today are going to focus on players, how to help your DMs create their story as players, and how to help yourself play the best game you can as a player. More than just simply, all right, we kill some things, cool. Uh, so, but before we get to that, we have some shout-outs to do. So, uh, I'll start the first one. Uh, this one is from Ben J. Latham. Uh, this one came in on March 4th, and it is entitled, A Great Listen for New and Experienced DMs. Five stars. He writes, I have been playing D&D and role-playing games ever since I was six years old. I've been DMing various games for over half a decade now, and I'm still learning things from this podcast. If you are looking for inspiration for your current or upcoming campaign, it is well worth the investment to sit down and spend a few hours listening. Thank you so much, Ben J. Latham. Uh, We really appreciate your review here on iTunes, and we really appreciate that it was five stars, hence the shout-out. And now we have a special one. Mitch is going to take the reins on this one. All right, so this one comes from across the pond from Britain. Uh, we had a special request a request from this fan that he said, please read it in a British accent. We would, I would love that. So uh, that's I said to Chris, all right, who's doing this one? He said, oh, you've got it pulled up. Yeah, you got it pulled up. Sure. I don't. So all right, this one. Here we go. Is the perfect podcast to go along with an afternoon spot or tea uh, is by the British Bulldog. The British Brute, I'm sorry. Apologies. Uh, so I say to you, old chaps, this is a mighty fine podcast I have been listening to. If you are already here, then you are already halfway towards a spiffing time. Mm. This podcast is a great piece of educational material in helping along new GMs or teaching old ones a new trick. I feel like you're getting into British, like, drill sergeant. <laughs> I dare say that if dungeon mastering, which in, which in Britain is one word, <laughs> was a studable subject, this would be equivalent material to William Shakespeare. Sir William Shakespeare. This comes highly recommended and is improved by a spot of tape. <laughs> Top show, gentlemen. Keep up the good work. P.S. Five food majors spell. 
Go! Oh, gosh, I forgot <laughs> you're, about this part. You suck. Uh, <laughs> entanglement spaghetti spell. <laughs> Your turn, Chris. <laughs> to do what? Food made spell. We need five of them. Go! Right, well, you could have some sauce balls. What? <laughs> like fireball. Sauce, sauce balls? Sauce balls. Whatever. <laughs> Animate food would be one, I would think. Uh, you could you could have a uh, charm waiter spell. Oh, so the waiter does what you want and doesn't argue back with us. Right. Right. <laughs> Food make spell number five would be ice cream storm. <laughs> Alright, we're done with that. Alright. That's enough of anything. <laughs> All right, We're sorry. To, the, to those few of you who are still listening, uh, let's move on to story time with Richard Howard. It's like oh, so sh- it's like so shameful. Let's just move on to story time. Story time. The time during the episode where we talk about what happened last week during our campaigns, our favorite moments, what we learned about ourselves, and what we learned about each other. Please join us now as we enjoy. Storytime. We're excited to have a returning guest here back on the pod. Richard Howard is here to join us again, and he was passionate about aquatic campaigns. He still is. Uh, he wants to talk about that more in the future, but today we're talking about players, and that's something else he's really passionate about. So, Richard Howard, welcome back to the show. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this episode. I'm a, I love being a player. I love being a DM, and, and I, hopefully this will give some people some great ideas. Because in every single way, we get to weave stories, whether it's exactly. DMs or players. We are excited to have Rich. He's in his uh, little bat cave of his uh, his <laughs> office right now, and uh, he's going to come and share a story with us that I think a lot of us are really going to glean a lot from and just really appreciate how Dungeons & Dragons has worked for players and as friends just in general. So, Rich, yeah. this is a great story. Just from what I've read over, you're going to expand on it a little bit more. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and, and share with us uh, your, your story? Sure. Thanks, guys. So... I moved from Kentucky, that small town in Kentucky I told you guys about, back in 1988. And as any gamer who moves from place to place can tell you, like, you move to a new place, you don't have any friends, right? But a gamer is never very far from a whole batch right. of his people, right? Yeah, yeah, we've gotten emails so, about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, so yeah, I went to the local like game and comic store called uh, a place called uh, Comic Quest up in uh, Orange County. You know, met some guys and got to play some games, but I got to know the owner of the store, and so he invited me to the kind of after-hours, you know, exclusive... The VIP of nerds. <laughs> exactly, the store <laughs> game. <laughs> um, and so I met some met some really cool people at that game, and, and one of them was my friend Matt. So I came into this game, I didn't know the DM, I didn't know what the game was going to be like. You know, they're like, well, what do you want to play? And I'm like, you know what, I'll play whatever you guys need. I'm the guest here, so let me fill in, or whatever. Right. So the story ended up being that they were, that all the players were slaves on a ship. And they just broken off the ship, I guess, in the previous adventure, um, which was, uh, I thought, a great way to start a game, right? Nobody knows each other. You're all slaves. You can be whatever you want, and you have to work together, right? So apparently apparently there was this half-ogre in the, on the ship they were calling Toby. And, uh, <laughs> great and name. <laughs> he, was, he, was just, he was just an NPC on the ship, I guess. But they were like, hey, do you want to play Toby? I'm like, a half-ogre? Uh, sure. All right, and uh, so I was a half-ogre that used a whip, so I could have no strength bonus whatsoever behind the <laughs> weapon I was using. 
and uh, and it was the only thing he was familiar with because he just got hit with it all the time. Right. right? <laughs> so he knew how to use it really well. <clears throat> right. Right. And so um, uh, this other guy at the table, Matt, was playing a uh, a Zulu warrior named Jokchonda Liklejo. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> so you but, have Toby uh, and then Jokchonda Liklejo. <laughs> right. Well, Two opposite him, ends of the spectrum for right. names. <laughs> everybody called him uh, Jackson. Jackson Little John was the, uh, what he called the, the pig man, what the pig men called him. And the reason isn't he called him pig... Isn't that funny when um, I've had players come to the table and they always create a crazy name. I've had like elf characters. Oh, yeah. Look up the... Uh, and like I remember one character I played with, Eldragaza Bakewiatham. And yeah. he'd explain exactly what it meant. But if you come to the table with that name, you're almost securing the fact that your character's gonna come up with the other character's gonna come up with a dopey nickname for you because they're not gonna learn. Well, I had that the first night in my campaign where it was like Caleb came with like or like I don't know what long, his name it's like is seven them. names we call him for his Diabolus, and it's the first name sounded like Ernie, and everybody calls him Ernie because right, of that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my favorite. I hate making names for characters, but uh, one of my favorites was uh, the only gnome I think I've ever played, and his name was Jerebadiah Shanazamaningan. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And so they called by, him Jebediah. <laughs> he, he went by Schnoz. Nice. <laughs> right. uh, anyway, so so Jackson was this Zulu warrior that was it was awesome. He, he was he, he's the, the Jackson Little John was the the pigmen's name for him. As I was saying, he called him pigmen because they squeal when you stick them, according to him. Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we got off this boat, and I, I didn't know any of these guys that were playing this game, and and uh, I just had this connection with this Matt guy. So I was like. All right, we're gonna. We just fell into playing it the uh, of mice and men, right? So I'm a half ogre. I have no direction. I've been a slave my whole life. So he just immediately started following Jackson and doing whatever Jackson was doing. And okay. uh, Matt was the kind of Matt was a storyteller. We'll talk about different types of players later. But Matt was a storyteller. He didn't really care about rules. I played with him for 25 years, and it was. A little bit annoying that I kept having to remind him to roll a D20 in the in the D20 system. I right. roll the hit. What do I roll? It's a D20. You've been playing this for two decades. Anyway. A D6, he, right? Right, exactly. And what do I add? The number with the plus in front of it. Oh, we've um, dealt with those guys. <laughs> They're always fun. Yeah, but he was brilliant at the, he he just told great stories, and so we fell into this uh, into this just hilarious dynamic between the two of us. But I mean, I was playing this half ogre like I could have min maxed this guy as some kind of fighter with a big sword, and you mm-hmm. know Jackson used like a bastard sword or something, so I picked that up. But nope, the whole game we played played for months and months. I just used a whip. I would never <laughs> use anything else, and it was uh it was a pretty it was a pretty incredible experience to kind of play second fiddle to another player and let him both as a person introduce me to these player people and as a sure. character kind of lead the way. Yeah, I could have played Toby as a real pain in the neck. You know, like sure. he doesn't know any social things, so he could have been, you know, wherever, in the King's King's Hall and doing really stupid crap to mess with other players. But instead, I just played him like taking a step back from those things and always just following Jackson's lead. Not that ja- which was funny because Jackson was, you know, the Zulu warrior in a medieval Europe, so it's not like he was doing the right thing either. Right, right. But Matt and I became uh, really close friends and we we played together for like I said decades. Um he passed away a few years ago unfortunately, but we we could always fall back on that on that kind of dynamic that we had together and it, it carried through every every play session i think and i think introduce, entering a game with an open mind 
about what you're going to do and what you're going to play and let yourself see what the dynamic of a group is sometimes. You know, sometimes you got to be a leader and like lead the group. Sometimes it's fun to sit back and see what the other people are doing and play second fiddle to them. There was a, right. there was a game called Ars Magica back in the day where like somebody would play the magic user and the magic user, the spellcaster would be God. But every other player played as bodyguards, like mm. his fighter or bodyguards. And I always loved playing the bodyguards because they were just more interesting. Like, yeah, I guess I could be the most powerful person at the table. But why? Like, it's so much more fun watching somebody else have a really, really good time doing whatever it is that they enjoy doing. The many reasons we all come to the table. And playing a, playing a support role stretches my abilities as a role player. Right. Yeah. Gets me more into the story. Yep. If I want to win a game, I can play a board game. And there's no, there's no winning. But having said that, there's lots of different reasons why people come to the table. So, being open to that. Yeah. You know. I mean, look at uh, that's a great point. Like, look at uh, all the you look at Marvel comics, DC comics, other stories of fiction, and look at the characters in that. Like, there's a lot of times there's when there's a group. There's a clear leader. But I've found that a lot of the times the clear leader isn't the one that is the most popular among the fans. It's like they're... Well, like Frodo and Samwise, I yeah, think of, too. Yeah, yeah, like you... And it doesn't even have to be like, oh, who's the favorite? But look at the other characters, and they're they're just as if not more interesting. And you could play a cat. It just shows you don't have to be the guy at the front to be really interesting and have a really good time. Like Hulk, Hulk is not the leader of the Avengers. <laughs> like, there's a good yeah. reason for that. But Hulk is super awesome and super interesting. Like you said, like Samwise. Like, like everybody should love Samwise. He's yeah. awesome. He's not the leader. <laughs> not in, no. Well, without like, him, there isn't. wouldn't have been a story. Sam exactly. or Frodo would have gotten himself killed so many times. Exactly. Well, think about this, too. Do you guys Did you guys ever read the Icewind Dale trilogy? The first yes, Ari Salvatore? Yeah. That story was not about Dritz. Nope. He, he was a supporting he character. And what happened? <laughs> He was just a random kind of dro ranger guy that, you know, Wolfgar and who was the human uh, barbarian. Brunar. Brunar, Brunar. was the, the, the dwarf, yeah. He was just this guy. But as a supporting character, it, so speaking as a writer, when you're trying to create supporting characters, there's an openness for supporting characters that you don't have when you're writing a main character. There's a reason why these supporting casts, why Han Solo is more popular than Luke. There's less pressure on a supporting cast character to fill certain roles to move the plot forward. They inevitably do, but because they play off of the actions, typically, of the main character, they can have an openness. Han Solo in Star Wars, he didn't have to make the decision to be a rebel as the main plot. And because of that, he became more interesting because he was wrestling with that idea more. He had to have more of a character arc, character growth, to move into that space. Where Luke really needs is the main character that, to try and make that decision a little bit earlier to, to move into that space, right? And Dritzt was the same. I think, all right, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Bob had an idea that this character was going to be explosive, right? Well, he makes all these other stories. He actually talked about characters. that in the latest D&D episode or podcast oh, yeah, that they put out. Yeah. Too. And like, yeah. the, the girl was like, the, the woman of the publisher, she's like, I need a character who's going to be a support character, throw it out. And he literally like came up with it in like a second, like just threw a name out there and was like, see if this works. Right. And he started out as a supporting character. Everybody loved him so much that right. he ended up getting his own books because of that, you know? And that must've been in the second edition days because the reason why he came up with that, because for some random, the random, like race restrictions in first and second edition were so weird. Like elves couldn't be druids or rangers. Like what is that all about? <laughs> but anyway, the in Unearthed Arcana, 
they introduced Drow as characters, or Drow, however you want to pronounce it. Right. They introduced them as a player character race, but for some reason they were able to be rangers. Like on the random chart That's table. That's right, he talked about close, that, yeah. took a close look at it, you're like, what the, what? But what else couldn't? <laughs> something it was really weird anyway i think he just was like oh that's an interesting combination what can i do with that because as a writer that's kind of what you do it's the what if scenario like Mm -hmm. what if a drow became a ranger what would that be like you know and then he threw it in this book and of course dritz is is an incredible character he's kind of the the wolverine of DD, really but anyway like i said he he started off as a supporting cast character and and toby toby is a character that i'll remember forever for a couple of things one of them is because he never ever did anything having to do with being the best fighter or the hero of the story he was an instigator in a way but it was a selective instigation i think like i've heard mitch say like you're you're, you feel like you're an instigator right you like to do things to move things forward but i can picture you doing it because you have experience as a dm and, and as a player i picture you doing it to make things more interesting not to just mess with other people and draw the attention to yourself yeah mm-hmm. i could be wrong yeah. you tell me chris i think he does it because <laughs> i think he has fun with it one and it creates yeah. those interesting story moments i don't think he does it to be a pain in the butt or anything like that but yeah <laughs> it, like it, it does it does create those interesting moments where we're walking through a cavern full of undead and we have two clerics and he's like all right i know this sucks for Chris because there's a bunch of undead and he didn't know something. I like to do things cleric. that I'm like, hmm, what would I do in this situation as a DM? Let's see what Chris does. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Was, but like oh, one of the one of the moments we were going out into this uh, swamp, Jackson and, and Toby and the rest of the crew were going out into the swamp to find a witch we had to find, and we were in this boat. So I'm I'm a half ogre and I'm in this tiny little boat. Taking up all the space, right? With Jackson there. And Jackson wasn't, I mean, he was a Zulu guy. He was like seven feet tall. It's not like he yeah. was a tiny guy. And like a bard and somebody else. Lady, you got a big fat whale on your boat. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so we're going through it, and, and there were like a butterfly flew by. So I'm like, as Toby, I'm like, ooh, nice. <laughs> and so I'm reaching out, and everybody's, all the players are laughing, but they're freaking out. They're like, Toby, don't do it. Because you're a massive ogre in a small boat. Right. And as soon as I shifted, everybody like went into the water, and then we got attacked by Sturges, right? Giant, <laughs> freaking monsters yeah. and stuff. Yeah, right. Thing, whatever. Which, was, it, which was a lot of fun, but it didn't break the game. It wasn't stealing other people's yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? It wasn't that kind of stuff. It was, it was a fun and interesting like moment. And then when we got to the witch, Toby was terrified of her. I mean, he could have crushed her. But he wasn't. He was he was this guy who was terrified of magic, but not like the old school barbarian that broke every magic item that he came across. That was also (laughs) super annoying. But because that was kind of just who he was as a person and it made it a much more interesting story. It also made it so that the players, hopefully in a good way, the players weren't expecting me to fill this particular role. There's there's really something to be said about having your tank and having your leader and having your, you know, different, you know, your DPS machine. There's something to be said about that, but there's also something to be said about kind of breaking out of that character, being able to perform those roles for the group when absolutely necessary. But as a as a character, questioning those a little bit, going out of type, out of character type, trying not to be a stereotype. So those that character and my ability to my choice of going in and, and being more of a, a follower than a taking over the table or trying to prove something to these new people I just met allowed me to make the the closest friend I've ever had. And I think that uh, that that speaks to how to be a good player for yourself, okay. to make the game better for yourself, but to 
to also help other people have a good time. And that's the whole point. Well, hey, Rich, thank you so much for sharing that story. That's uh, that's awesome. We really appreciate that. Thanks for thanks for Toby. Thanks for Jackson, little John, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I have a link to some of that story too somewhere. Yeah, um, that'd be great. I'll, I'll throw it up somewhere. You guys can read about. Uh, yeah, we can we can put it in the show events. notes. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's head over to the meat of the episode now. Starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Starving that. Just a mouthful. No. <laughs> All right, so for the meat of this episode, we are, like we said in the intro, talking about players for once. We are coming to the table as DMs who also love to play. I mean, I think all of us started first as players in Dungeons & Dragons, right? Like, that's how we began playing this amazing game, and that's what sparked at least my interest in role-playing games in general, besides the, you know, playing it on video games and such. And so we want to talk about players, like we said today, and talk about what it means to be a player, what it means to be a DM who is a player, and just give some advice and give ideas and just talk about the greatness of playing the game of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, So first off, uh, let's talk about why do we as people love to come to the table, whether it's every week, whether it's once a month, some people wanting it to be every single day. (laughs) Why do we come to the table to play Dungeons and Dragons in the first place or any kind of role-playing game? The kind of things that I've run into being a player at the table, right? Like we, we, we were just talking about this before the show started. Uh, we've all had, all three of us have had kind of stressful couple weeks, but like my stress for the most part ended on Tuesday and Tuesday night's our game. So I was looking forward to it, just getting to burn off the stress of the previous couple of weeks and get out of, you know, reality for a little bit and be with my friends. But, you know, that burning off the stress, like, re- reset me for the next day. That was, that was me this week. Like, we got in mid-fight against some some characters, and I was just, I got this phone call, and then I came and sat back down. I was like, we're going to finish this fight. This guy's going to die. I've never char- I don't think I've ever charged with my rogue character before. I was like, I'm charging him. Going straight for him. I'm just going to kill it. It's like, that is so much stress. You had family, yeah, you had family issues going on. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, I critted. And I had to be the DM going, you can't crit an undead, Chris. <laughs> like, don't hurt me. You still killed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I totally get uh, that, though. Coming yeah. to burnout stress. That's, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... It's called fantasy for a reason. Gets you out of the real world, which can be stressful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, t- uh, telling a cool story is obviously kind of the uniqueness of a role-playing game, right? You're all coming together, hopefully, to tell a good story. But yeah, actually, yeah. not everybody. That's not everybody's goal. It's my goal, you know. But <laughs> right. uh, but it, it's not everybody's goal. Sometimes for some people, it's just a side effect of getting coming to the table. Mm-hmm. Some people want to win. Like, even though there's no, like, there's no winning technically, it's not like you have a certain number of victory points or whatnot. Right. And, you know, that kind of the catchphrase role-playing games is winning is everybody has fun. But some people want to do do it right, right? So kind of that the, the min-maxer who puts the, if I put all these pieces together in the right way, I get this really interesting thing, whatever that happens to be. And for them, that's that's winning. You winning know, is killing all those characters in the battle and starting right. your, having your character turn around with the... Orc head in its hand. Look at me. Screaming. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Or, or rescuing the prince or yeah. princess. Or, completing you know, the goal, exactly. Completing whatever the goal is. They just want to get to that goal. Mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, socialize, which can be ups and downsides around the table, right? If you don't, guys, if the only time you ever see some uh, group of people is once a month, you're going to spend that half an hour, an hour before you even start just trying to catch up on life, yep, you yeah, know? Yep. And and overall, that's okay, you know? Like, oh, you gotta, yeah, totally. You want to catch up with people, right? Um, some people like the war to war game. You know what I mean? Like the, I mean, D and D started as a miniatures war game that was taken from the army level down to the squad level, which was kind of the the original point. Like, hey, well, what instead of you know we all are playing these you know big u- units worth of people, what if we all played one person? That's mm-hmm. weird. Let's try that. But that's the way it started. And so some people want to come and move pieces around the board and play chess. But I mean, overall, whatever reason people come to the table, whatever reason your personal reason is, and it can change from game to game. We're all there to have a good time. The thing that's hard sometimes as a player is remembering that everybody may have fun differently than we than we have right, fun. Right. And I think that's where as, as players we get frustrated with other players, right? Because it's like, guys, I'm trying to hear the DM tell the story about the thing because it's so exciting and, and they're just waiting for the next, you know, chess game. Or you're so, the um, player who's waiting for the next chess game and you're annoyed at the players who are trying to role play in town all the time. Yeah, like, shut like up, that. like let's get to really, battle. Really everybody wants to have fun. 15 but minutes wants talking to, to the merchant. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Do we really, like, the prices are right there. Can I just look the, them up, Alon? Does the DM even have a name for this guy? Really? <laughs> Everybody has different yeah. expectations. I think we each have reasons that we all come to the table. To, I mean, that us three come to the table, too, both as a DM and as a player. And so I'll just open this question up. Like, why do what do we love about DMing, you guys? Like, I, I have my reasons why I love it, but... What, what do you guys have? Why do you love coming to the table as a DM? Uh, for me, uh, it's the act of... Cri- like, I, I've, since I was young, have loved fantasy lore. Like, anything fantasy lore, I'll just eat it up. I mean, since I've been DMing before I knew what Dungeons & Dragons was. <laughs> because right. in my mind, like, when I was, like, four years old, I was creating worlds in my head and creatures and stories. Like, I'd be running around with the... A pool noodle acting like it's a sword <laughs> and pretending in my mind that I'm attacking dragons. People, my neighbors are probably looking at like across the way, going, "What's that weird kid doing running in the yard, <laughs> wailing the pool noodle at?" But like I was creating stories in my head, and that would that would be like just so much fun for me. And as an adult, I would rather do DMing than run around my yard with a pool noodle. Although <laughs> we did do a LARP for your we bachelor party. We did do a LARP for my bachelor party. That was pretty sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah, like. To me, Dungeons and Dragons DMing is a way for me to get some of my all these ideas and stories out of my head and to introduce them to my friends and get to see what they do with them and cr- like it all comes down to that story aspect, creating a story, creating a world, creating characters. To me, like there's nothing more satisfying than introducing something s- story plot, um story twists, story characters and when I see that, like, the faces of players, when they're genuinely, like, interested, when they're, like, they, they perk up and they're like, whoa, that was cool. When I hear uh, hashtag Magic Mark uh, mistake the lore of my world for Forgotten Realms and I have to tell him, no, that's the lore of my world. Like, that's what, like, <laughs> he's like, oh, I get my fantasy lore mixed up. And for him to, like, have my fantasy lore up with, like, things like Forgotten Realms and stuff, yeah. like... It's like there's nothing greater That's quite than a compliment. that feeling. Yeah, I'm a, I love you, Magic Mark. You listen to my lore way more. Sometimes he reminds me of lore that I've created. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. Glad you're listening. But yeah, yeah that is just it's so rewarding and it's so much fun. 
and just being able to it's it's a great time with friends my favorite yeah. hobby yeah yeah i know for me i remember in elementary school i kind of like i kind of put my nerdy side off to the side in high school because i the friends that i had weren't nerdy as far as dungeons and dragons and star wars and all that stuff so i i kind of got really into sports for a while and which is great i still love sports to this day but i remember in i think it was second grade in mrs mrs Beld's class i had to we had to write a short story about like or no maybe it was fourth grade uh, yeah it was fourth grade we had to write a short story and turn it in for like a for a grade for our english portion of our class and i remember writing a story about dr jinko and like he had like this crazy castle that did all these weird things it was like we were required to do it in like i think two pages and mine was like i mean it was like uber short story right it was like right. come up with a character say they save the princess like that's it and mine was like, I think it was like 22 pages or something like that. I was just like, I can't not like write about this. This is so cool. And it was like, it was kind of, I kind of took the element of like Darth Vader, like Dr. Jinko secretly had a son. His son was hired to go and kill him. And like, Dr. there's like, there's like this moment where like his son lets off this, like this bomb goes off and he's like, no, save yourself. And he like does this spell to like fling him from the castle and he just watches the castle explode. <laughs> and uh, it's like. Like, that was just, like, that was my first taste of, like, I love telling stories like that. Like, my yeah. friends were all like, wow, this is really, I mean, we're fourth graders, so we all suck at writing. And they're just like, wow, this is really great. Like, we love writing. And I, like, drew, like, the cover and stuff like that on, like, I mean, I had the staples, like, plastic cover, black back, where you could slide the papers in there and clip it shut. And I was like, I was so proud of this. And I actually found it, like, five years ago in, like, a box down in my room. It was so, it was so funny <laughs> to go back and read it. And I was like, wow, this is this is awful, you know. Yeah. Horrifying. Yeah. I'm glad that you Horrifying. have a good, like your friends have like a good reaction to that. Yeah. Because I have yeah. a very similar story, like when I was in middle school and I like wrote a story, <laughs> and it was one of those like read it in front of the class things, and I just remember oh. looking around and all the class was like, "What is this kid yeah, on?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it like I wrote stories like that in high school too for my creative writing class, and I never shared them. Like yeah. I, I never, I was so <laughs> nervous to like get up and share them. But like I, you know, in fourth grade we wrote more stories. We wrote stories about like four dragons that were friends that were going throughout all of the land and like capturing people and like you know like hoarding treasure it's like yeah it was and we like we we had like an artist who was the guy like doing the the sketches and stuff because he was just a genius at it but like i've always really been interested and i was i was read the hobbit like 12 times by my dad like or i was read it like four times by my dad when i was little and like i've just always been enveloped in these like fantasy stories i i love them i love being a part of them i love playing in them i love trying to to tell the stories and so back last year when when you were you were kind of getting to that point where you're like man i'm dming so much like this is a, this is a lot going on i was like i'd like to give it a try i'll do it i like doing this stuff and like since then i've just absolutely one i love getting everybody together i'm just i'm so, i love being social with people i love having friends like come together and hang out and to be able to tell a story at the same time where we're we're able to socialize catch up and yet play in a world that i've created with all of these stories it's just is so much fun for me to see. Maybe there's a Dr. Jinko somewhere in my world. <laughs> yeah, for me, I mean, I think I think it's pretty, you know, common thread, right? We all, I also love to tell the stories. the The thing that's unique to me about DMing is that I, I tell people <laughs> that it, it it's the only kind of activity that I can think of that makes you use both sides of your brain at the same time. Oh yeah. Because not only are you creating this imaginary world. 
you're also doing all the math. So you're doing the math, you're doing the game balance stuff, you're bringing the you're bringing the monsters in, you're improvisationally acting, you're you're telling the story that you wrote down, but like, you know, no no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? You make all these ideas and these plans, right, as a DM, and as soon as you put a player in there, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. So you have to you have to they decide to, to imp- split the party. Right. Bitch. You have to <laughs> You have to improvise, so you you got to do both these things. And and back when I started, when I started, I mean, D and D was was awesome, but it was also a bit chaotic, being the first role playing game, and they're still trying to figure that stuff out. But but the other game that I just absolutely adored was uh, Champions uh, from Hero System, and that is a super math intensive game. So when you're creating characters and you're doing, you know, just even rolling dice, I mean, even now it's you know D twenty plus some numbers. It's always interesting to me to see the players that I know that haven't done a lot of math in their life struggle with some of these numbers and me realizing that as a kid, this is how I learned how to do math. Yeah. You know, I still for that from a lot fractions. of people, yeah. Yeah, I still multiply fractions in my head, you know, with this vision of the table in Hero System that helped you do that, you know. Right. Um, but to be able to be able to do both of those things, to tell the story at the same time that you're doing all this math, like it's like a triathlon for your brain. Like people who are addicted to athletics and running and things like that talk about how they get the shakes when they don't get to do it for very long. I feel the same way about about DMing. So it, if I don't get to DM, I, I feel like I'm out of shape. Like my brain doesn't work as fast, right? Yeah. I'm not as I'm not as witty. I'm not as smart. I'm not as quick on the draw, right? Well, Mitch, you had that sentiment the, yesterday when we played. You were kind of like, oh, how do we do this? <laughs> like, yeah, what like, we, I haven't done, yeah, we haven't done this in four weeks. Once. Yeah. It was hard, and we we got back into it. Uh, but sometimes, yeah. It's like, man, yeah, I feel I feel out of out of shape. For, and the play, well, like out I hear shape. that a lot from players too. If they uh, same kind how of how do I play this like, character again? Man, I haven't yeah. played this character in a while. Like things have been like yeah. over after Christmas break. Oh, like, gonna take a little bit of practice again. Yeah. Damn. Well, what is it the same for you guys as players? Like, what 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 makes you want to come to the table as a player as opposed to a DM? For me, I think it depends on the character that I'm playing. Why I want to come to the table. Like, whenever hmm. I seem to play a a dwarf, I always want to be like the meat shield. I always just want to like be blood crazy, kill things, right? Like that's hmm. that's what I play. But I, like now with you know crew or the the halfling that I'm playing. I mean, I've I've helped create like this whole Riders of Shemesh that's now altered, you know, the whole world of of Shemesh seemingly, you know. And so I think for me it just depends on what character I'm playing. But I I love to I love to try and like I don't want to say alter history, but I like to no, yeah, I like to, I like to play around. yeah I like yeah. to make sure that like what I'm doing is actually making a difference because. I know you, you know Mitch, you take into account everything that we do, and it it affects the world, you know, no matter what timeline we're on in your world and and for me it's like i like to be able to say my actions actually had repercussions and i'm not just going into a cave to destroy the bear that's in there that's really going to play no significance in the world i like i like coming to the table and whether it's killing a bunch of things trying to move you know the timeline forward or if it's i'm creating a whole animal riding gang within a world that's going to shape the world i i like just being in in the history doing the stuff to help one, help the DM create the history of the world, but two, just to know that I actually made a difference, you know, in, in this mm-hmm. imaginary world that, that we're playing. And I think that's why I, I come to the table and to have fun with friends, of course. That's, yeah, of course. That's the big one. Yeah. Yeah. For me, exactly. it's a different kind of animal than DMing in a good way a lot of times. So, like, as DM, like I said, I like to shape the world. I like to shape the story. When I come to the table as a player, 
not only is it a is it a welcome break sometimes because DMing is a lot of work, work that I love, but it's work. But when I come to the table as a player, I am I am not one of those people because I know that some people can say creating a character is a lot of work because they've already planned up to level twenty and they've got yeah. features. That's not me. I can't spend that much time on a character. I can spend a lot of time thinking about who a character is, but I can't spend time crafting a character through like on a computer or whatever. But for me, when I come to the table, it's a nice break. I get to sit back and go, all right, I get to change the story. But I'm not the I'm not the like guy who has to figure out everything at every single turn. This is yeah. nice to sit back and like be able to enjoy the story as it goes on. That element of unknown, I don't know where the DM's gonna go with this. And throwing things at the DM, because I'm an instigator, uh, <laughs> and getting to see what he does, like with now now I'm giving you stuff to try and do and seeing what he does. And sometimes it's interesting as a DM going, hmm, I would have done that differently, but I like the way he did that. Right. Um, yeah. And one of the biggest things I think for me is the camaraderie. As a DM, you get to see what all the players do, but you're it's different. When you're sitting at a table with a team of people of other players trying to to get to those goals and to accomplish certain things, like you're you're part of it. You don't know what the DM has planned, you don't know what the monster is able to do. You don't know those things, and so together, you're all in it together, and you're trying to work together to accomplish the goals together. And I love that. I love, like, being part of a team, working it out. That's one of my favorite things. And finding finding strategic ways to win battles through role-playing. Like, I never want to just go off of the sheet. I want to, like... <laughs> like I'm well known for bringing things that will explode with me into battle and using them somehow. <laughs> nice. Uh, or, like, a bag of marbles or something. But <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, I, I think that you both made that point, which, which is what I would say, too, which is that taking, uh, taking ownership of the story, right? Like being, being able to, to have that effect on what's happening around you. As a, as a DM, we're acting and reacting. But as, as, and as a player, you're acting and reacting, but it's, it's different. You're taking ownership of, of, of your character and, and becoming that hero of the story that you, you don't really as a DM. Right. You're the, you're the, as a DM, you're the instigator for four or five, six of your, or 13 or whatever you were saying <laughs> earlier, Mitch, of your friend. Yeah, 13 of them. <laughs> right. So you're, you're the instigator, you know, trying to, uh, trying to see what they do. It's like you've got a bunch of people in a, in a, in a rat's maze and you're just curious as to, well, if I do this instead of this, what happens? Right. But um, being able to take a have a have a character. So the character I, I I posted this recently about the character I'm playing right now. This oceanic cleric, this Aquaman like cleric. But I didn't realize during character generation that everybody else was like chaotic neutral and chaotic good. And I actually, even though paladins in fifth edition don't have alignment restrictions anymore, I actually made him lawful good. Mm-hmm. So I'm the only lawful good character in this chaotic party. And so how do you? <laughs> How do you do that? Like, what what do I choose to do? Do I choose to be a pain in the neck and be that almost yeah. like paladin-like cleric that tells everybody how wrong they're being, or do I climb into the head of this character and see what his reaction to these situations would be? Well, it, it turns out that a lot of the um, the aristocracy and the rulership of this town is being undermined by by this cult of Orcus who's planted these agents throughout it, and so all these people that my character has trusted. And even even very dear friends of my character are turning out to be like undead horrors that I didn't know. And so that and and spending time with these chaotic characters is causing him to shift his alignment, not because his internal dialogue is like, 
no longer that law is the way to do good. It's that, yeah, law, I still believe that law is the way to do good, but I'm also seeing the downside now. Like when you have unquestioned authority, somebody corrupts that. I don't know who to trust anymore. <clears throat> law used to be the way that I knew how to trust people. You're either a criminal or you're not a criminal, right? These are the rules. If you follow the rules, you're doing right. Yeah. Well, now he's finding out all of these things. So now he's shifted to neutral good. And so now I had this really interesting character arc, you know, where he's moving more toward Poseidon, his god, who's chaotic neutral, and being able to have this interesting story about how to do that. So the internal dialogue of this character is almost more interesting than the external dialogue I'm having with the other players at the table. Yeah. And that's yeah. really interesting to me. I can focus on one character and not have to focus on a bunch of characters. Yeah, I read your article about him yesterday, and we were kind of typing back and forth. I still think you need to find a way to get that Megalodon where you can just call him at any random time, <laughs> like Aquaman. I, still, I know. I still think so you need to Megalodon get that in there. Always, Megalodon who always seems to be like within five feet of Aquaman, <laughs> yeah. where he is, that he just, oh, this round I'm going to summon my Megalodon. Oh, okay. We don't know where the hell it's coming from. We don't know where it's coming from, but here yeah. it comes. Eating the bag. Really? Okay. <laughs> Anyway, but I, I, had an, I had another question for you guys. Is there is there somebody in particular that taught you how to role play a character? Is there somebody that 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 you looked at and you said, "Ooh, that's a different way of looking. This isn't rolling the dice and moving pieces around a board." That guy showed me what the difference is between playing a role playing game and playing a board game. You know what I mean? Because I, I I know that Mitch is kind of Chris. Mitch is kind of your like mentor for DMing, but do you guys have mentors or people that taught you how to role play? No, I, I don't. I think I just did it because the first person I ever played with back in middle school was so, like, almost annoyingly to the point where everything was always battle. I mean, we're middle schoolers, so, I mean, that's, like, that's like yeah. what he wanted to do. But he also, like, I don't think he wanted me to be there either because I was, like, friends with the other people in the group. But I wasn't really friends with him, but they all wanted me to play with him. Uh, and so I think, like, it was almost out of spite that I started <laughs> doing more role-playing things in the group. Because he was so, like, like he gave me, I think he gave me, like, a gnome character. And I didn't really know what a gnome was. And it was, like, the most, like, he made it for me. It was the most worthless thing ever. And I was just, like, I was just, like, all right. What a great DM. Yeah, I was, like, I, I, he really didn't and want me there. And that's what we're trying to teach you on this part. <laughs> and so I was just, like, all right, I'm going to do basically, like, we were we were in a battle on the top of a wall. And I basically, like, ran around and was just talking to commanders that I could find. Because I was like, I can't do anything. I'm going to die if I just run into battle here. So I'm, like, running around talking to all, like, the commander's like, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Like, what? And he's just like, just fight the stupid battle. I'm like, I can't. Like, you gave me this terrible character. Like, you're forcing your me into this role. Wow, trial by fire role playing. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't think there was anybody that I really looked at and was like, hey. This is how you role play other than rolling dice. I think it was more of like I was kind of thrust into that situation because I had such a crappy character <laughs> that I, I had to rely on role playing or else I was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was literally a life or death thing that I had to learn how to role play. Yeah. For me, it was uh, it's funny because I was the one who DM first between me and Chris, but Chris was actually the one who got me into Dungeons and Dragons. He invited me to play. I just I don't know if I ever share this story. He invited me to play Dungeons and Dragons uh, in college. I had no interest up until this point. I had friends in high school like who played, and I was like uh, a jerk to them, and I was like, "Nah, that's too nerdy," you know. Like I'm a nerd, but that's too nerdy. <laughs> I won't. I wouldn't like that. Uh, and I went to play with Chris and a couple of my other friends from college with the intent to troll the game. <laughs> yeah, to you be did. An evil character. You did. 
and I trolled the game. I totally was the evil character who stole stuff from you guys. and You stole my dead mother's pendant that I'd just gotten back from my uncle. And yeah, it, was it great. ended... I've heard that story before. That, <laughs> that, that's like a scar you need to go to therapy for. <laughs> DM therapy. You. I need to go yeah. to the uh, to Wizards and be a part of their like DM <laughs> sessions that they well, have there. <laughs> and so I was like this evil character in a group of good characters. Right. And we ended the session, and I was just trolling the whole time. And we ended the session, and everybody gets up from the table, and was just like, that was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was a blast. And I was like, yeah, it was a blast. I had fun doing that. That was a <laughs> lot of fun. And so, who taught me role-playing? It, honestly, it was probably that one first time of seeing how they did it. But then from then on, like, that group kind of played less. And yeah. I kind of had been given my first dose and became an addict. So I got more of my friends. I kept saying... Guys, you gotta play. I know you don't think it's gonna be cool, but it's gonna be the coolest thing you've ever played. And I got some right. of my friends hooked into it, who we play with to this day, and now they're so hooked. And through, we kind of learned together. I would also probably put credit to Acquisitions Incorporated for watching oh, them nice. and being like, wow, yeah, they're, they've got it down pat. They're doing it right. They're having a lot of fun. It's awesome the way they do it. They're laughing at the table. They're not taking it so seriously that nobody can, like, joke and stuff. So that's kind of how I learned, just from simply jumping in and seeing what Kristen has, and being like, because I think I remember just being like, I don't know how to do this. Like, Yeah, you right? literally and said, you looked like a deer the first, in the headlights when I you first I think the first down. thing <laughs> I did when you guys started acting was, I love that look. like, I'm a level <laughs> one wizard with, like, nothing. <laughs> no kind of spells. But I just, I'm like, I don't know how the game goes. So we would go into a tavern, and I, like, we needed something. And so I jump up on the table, and I just, like, I take my staff, and I'm like, everybody, get down on the ground. Oh, that's right. I remember like, that. Give us what we want. Forgotten Realms. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned really quick that I was not powerful at level one. Yeah, you did. I, yeah, you did. Uh, <laughs> and we didn't know that. We were just like, oh. What is he doing? I think like, all you guys were like, don't pay any attention to him. He's yeah, I think, we, I think we were like, yeah, don't worry. But he's yeah. like, he's so, our he's our buddy. I that's guess a little that's bit how crazy. I learned to role play. What about you, Rich? Well, I, I, it was a very, very uh, specific memory I had. So I, I told you about how I started playing with my brother being forced to take me to his role playing game. Mm-hmm. When you had the I, sleep spell. I was, and there, yeah. I was eight and he was 16 or whatever. A couple years after that, he went into the Air Force because he was older than I was. It was a really sad time for me. It was four years not having my older brother. But, um... When he came back, I, I kept I kept gaming. I, I my my dad bought us the basic D and D set when I was 10, 1980, and we messed around with that. And then I picked up Champions, which is that superhero game I was talking about. Well, when Steve came back from the Air Force, we invited him. My my friend Craig and I invited him to come play with us, and we'd made our superheroes. And there was like this one map, this overhead map of like a city street with like a bank and stuff that came with the Champion set. And so every game of ours was, okay, which roof are you on when the bank gets robbed, <laughs> right? So I'll be on this roof, and you be on that roof, and then, you know, this time it's Mechanon, you know, robbing the bank, and the next time it's, you know, Grodd. Well, bank? Brother, I know, right? This bank really needed to relocate. Now hiring, and nobody comes <laughs> in like ever. Else, right? Exactly. Well, so my brother came, and we gave him this uh, NPC. It was some archer character. And I was like, what? okay, here you go. Here's your character. What roof are you going to be on? And he was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, we're, we're, we start on the roofs. And he's like, no, I'm walking down the middle of the street, walking a poodle with a Hawaiian shirt on, eating an ice cream cone. <laughs> and 
the two of us were like, I don't know what's happening right now. Can you do that? <laughs> what's happening? What do you mean? You need to be in your super suit and ready to save the bank. And it was this completely jarring moment that I didn't even understand that at all. And I don't, I don't know if I ever even told him that story about how much of an influence that had because that whole situation suddenly became a story about a character walking down the street when the bank gets robbed. And then what do you do? I mean, it's not a, clearly it's not the most complicated plot line ever written, but it's this he really opened the door. It was a few years later that we were uh, I was running a big game indie basic. Actually, I think we went back to basic for a while. I like the flexibility of basic in the day. He came and played in that campaign. It was a, it was a brilliant and, and definitely underappreciated basic module called Night's Dark Terror. It was like one of the first campaign modules, like an adventure path, like Path like Paizo has. Great story. He came and he played in it, and we played a couple of adventures. And then one of his friends from high school came to visit him, and he, uh, they were talking about D&D, and I think I was 16 at the time, so he must have been in his 20s. And he turned to his friend, and uh, he said, he said, oh, your, your little brother DMs, like, <laughs> at 15 or 16 or whatever it was. And he was like, yeah, my little brother's the best DM I've ever had. Nice. And I'm kind of choking up about it because... It was really, it was a, it was a really, it was a compliment that stuck with me my whole life. Yeah. And as much as that, that, that cool roll in the two eights or whatever on the sleep spell was, I think it was that moment that I realized that I loved this game, mm-hmm. that there yeah. was, a, that I could huh. share these experiences with people, you know, yeah. Yeah. but he's the one who always just, he always rocked my world with the role playing. So he was my, he was my hero on that front. That's so. awesome. Yeah. yeah, he knew how to bring up. He knew how to improvisationally act in a way that I'd never seen done before, which is a, which is key to to figuring out how to move a move a story forward as a player. I think you may not be that good at improvisational acting, but at least understanding the idea behind it is pretty key. And there's this some I have a lot, being in San Diego, I have a lot of friends in L.A. who do acting, and and one of the one of the concepts they taught me that I didn't realize that I was always doing in role playing that's very key to improvisational acting is the yes and concept. Yeah, I do this, so do we, we do this a lot in planning meetings at where I work, the yes and, no idea is a bad thing type thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when you have a bunch of people on a stage, like um, you know the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway or whatever, and you have these improvisational acting groups, when somebody says something, you can't say no as the other actor on the stage. Otherwise, everything grinds to a halt. So you have to, no matter what crazy whatever comes out of somebody's mouth, <laughs> You have to go, yeah, and, and then the alien came and landed on the nun. You're like, yeah, totally, and then. The right? nun ate him. Right, right. <laughs> and I mean, this can carry over to DM, DMing, but it, I think it's really key as players, is not telling somebody else no at the table as often as you can. I mean, sometimes well, yeah. you just have to say no, but really, if somebody says something, like, dive in and see where it goes. You know? I think we've talked about before, too, how sometimes people have a hard time connecting with a group. Like, what reason do I have to stay with the group or whatever? These kind of like, if you go into role playing with the yes and mentality, it's automatically like, oh, is this happening? Well, I don't know if my character would be involved in that. It's like, no, just do yes. And yes. this is what exactly. I'm doing. And it helps build that camaraderie, like like what you were talking about, why you, you know, Mitch, why you come to the table sometimes. I remember the specific, uh, very, it relates to this strongly, this instance where I was playing and a friend of ours was DMing. He was DMing in my world, so I kind of knew the geography. I was like, all right, here you go. Like, you want to try DMing? Here you go. And I was playing with this one guy and we came up to a, a door and we had, we knew our goal was on the other side. Uh, I think we were trying to assassinate somebody or something. And so I just kind of turned to him and I was like, 
Hey, you remember that time in yeah. that time in Southern Magrathon? And he this is his first time, I think, playing, so it's like yep. I was trying to introduce that without knowing this yes end concept. I was trying to like get him to right. yes end me. Uh and he just kinda looks at me and he's like he's like, I don't know what you mean. I'm like I'm like, I'm just making up story here. Just like go along. Go with like it. we've we've been adventurous together. Go with it. And he's like, Yeah, I remember that time in Southern Magrathon. And so I I'm a strong dude. I pick him up and I decide I'm going to slam him through the door as if he was a battering ram. Yeah. And he's like, "What?" But that to him became like this. And we, then I think one of our friends found out the door was unlocked. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that became like the biggest ongoing joke. Which From is funny then on, the door being unlocked is exactly what happened back in Southern Magrathon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it was, yeah. it was great because that became <laughs> that player who had never DM before or who had never played before. Then from now on, you heard him say that so many times. We'd come up to a certain situation, and he'd just be like, "Oh man, you remember that time in Southern yeah. Magrathon?" And like, I'd be like, "Yeah," and do something <laughs> like totally ridiculous. It became great. It was that it's that yes end mentality. He went and bought like, a helmet after that. Go with it and see where it goes. It creates great yeah. moments. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and you see it. You see it in between characters in movies, right? The 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 example I I think of is um. There was some moment in the Avengers movie where Black Widow and Hawkeye are there, and she's like, this is just like back in Bahrain yeah. or whatever, yeah. and Hawkeye's like, you and I remember Bahrain very differently. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? Now, we don't know what was there. I don't remember what country it was, but it, it brings a depth to the characters that you want to now. I know, now I want to know what happened back yeah, then. Yeah. Right? Clearly, yeah. that was an interesting moment of some sort. But even if they don't revisit it ever... It, it's still a really great. It, it brings some depth to the characters. That you playing. remember it's, it. It's like, an instant bonding moment. You remember the, right. what they said in that movie, but you have no idea what they're talking about. It's absolutely right. correct. Yeah. And then when you do, you know, sometimes people come up with ideas that are a little bit too far, maybe. But I mean, you can still, instead of saying yes and, you could say no but. So like, okay, while well, Chris and I want to play, and Mitch is DMing, and uh, hey, Chris, let's 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 play brothers. And you're like, nah, you know, you're playing a human. I really want to play an elf or Crazy whatever. Crazy gnome Maybe. brothers, right? right? I did that with one of my friends in nice. uh, in his campaign before. Well, say say like I was saying, like like you want to play human, I want to play an elf or whatever. But you can say, well, no, we can't really be brothers, but we could be cousins so maybe like each who are one really of close parents, like brothers yeah. each, well each one of us is like our parent was like a half elf right but like my mom was an elf and my dad was a half elf and i came out to be three quarters elf which is pretty much elf right and then you same thing but human and then suddenly we have this grandparent connection which is right. a little farther back, right? So you, you got this little depth of character, like how did how did this happen, and what what kind of effect does that have on our relationship? Remember like the time you... we blasted the hole in Grandma's wall? <laughs> yes, right, exactly. and you remember? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a no because you genetically, I guess, can't do that, I suppose. But I mean, <laughs> but it's a, it's an and. Like, let's try no, but but let's try something else. So like in the in the last game that I I ran this uh, one shot game, one of the players was playing a uh, Githzerai. Which is currently on tribality.com. And uh, <laughs> they have a mage hand power, right? It's just tele it's basically Jedi telekinesis. And and there was a there was a door they came up to and it was locked. The door wasn't locked, but it had a bar across the back end. And so he was like, Can I use my mage hand to lift the bar up on the other side of the door? And I was like, Normally no. But why not? Let's make a really high difficulty check, intelligence check or wisdom check or whatever. 
and have you give it a shot. And it took a little while and he did it and it was cool. And the people on the other side were freaking out because their bar was lifting up. with nobody <laughs> touching it. Right. it led to some really interesting moments. But being able to throw those things out as a player and, and, and have other players encourage you and, and have the DM encourage, you know, coming up with these ideas. You want to participate as a player and you hope that other people encourage you to participate as a player. They not make you play a, a worthless gnome in a, in a Helm's Deep fight. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Who had no opportunity to have a box, might I add. Right. But, <laughs> exactly. but yeah, I was just going to say with both of these, the yes and and the no but, like no matter whether you're told no, but let's work on, you know, what about this? I think they both as players, they can help you like with the yes and. It takes that idea that you had to the next level that makes it even better. And I think with the no but, it's like, you could probably come up with something that's even cooler than what you had originally intended by being yeah. told no, but let's come up with something else that will be yeah. equally as cool, if not better and more memorable. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. I think too, you know, I know we're focusing a lot on players this episode, but as a DM too, this is a good, this is a good rule for DMs to dealing with their players. When they, when your player comes to you and says, I really want to do this, not just to say no, but the no but rule can be really good in that sense of figure out why it is that they want to do that, and maybe there's another option. Uh, we talked on one of our episodes about a, D, a DM not having orcs in his world and having a player who wanted to play an orc, and well, understand why does he want to play an orc? Maybe there's another race that fits that characteristic, so can I play right. an orc? No, but there's this race that would be good for you, like... Having that kind of mentality as a DM, too, is like, we are already said, we play D&D &D to have fun, so not shooting your players just down, but, like, helping them. Like, no, that doesn't make sense in this story. No, the rules don't allow that, but let's see if we can get you, like, at least halfway there. I remember right. I had a player who wanted to, at, I think, first level, create golems, and I was like, oh, have yeah. a golem as a, like, companion, and I was like... No, golems at first level are completely ridiculous. I'm sorry, but you can't have that. But maybe you can craft myrrh from magic instead. And so he had these little myrrh running around. And instead of going like, ah, oh, DM shut down my cool idea, he was like, I can create myrrh and got all excited and we created like a whole system myrrh. of myrrh and they were not OP in any fashion, but he had a great time creating myrrh. Yeah. He had like shield myrrh and sword mm -hmm. myrrh and rope myrrh running around doing all these crazy yeah, I tasks. Yeah, I think I remember you guys talking about that in a previous yeah. game and it sounded it sounded like a really cool a really cool idea because it's basically just equipment, right? Yeah. 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 But it, it's got a great flavor to it. That you exactly. Use. I still remember the story of when you had the mushroom people uh, floating the spores out around and we were like, all right, he's trapped in there. We can't send any of us in because we'll fail the save too. Let's send the send Murr the in. Mur. <laughs> and we're like, Murr can't fail the save, right? And did, I think he did, didn't he? Did he? I don't, I don't no. think so. No, we we took, yeah, that's right. We took the rope we from. Can't be charmed or anything. Yeah, that's right. We took the rope and tied it around the shield, Murr, had him walk around our buddy, and then we pulled him <laughs> pulled out. <him> back. <laughs> you know, so it's like those those no butt moments led to some really cool stories for us later on in that yeah. campaign. It was awesome. Yeah. I sent you guys a story. I think about the Hellions campaign, which was a uh, it was a second edition game that was no magic at all. Like, we were not allowed to have any magic. All of our players that we created were all supposed to be criminals who basically were given the choice of either die, you know, be executed for whatever our supposed crime was, or join the Hellions as, like, a suicide mm -hmm. squad. Well, there was, uh, he told us that we could have no spellcasters and that we weren't going to have any magic. And also, we were all criminals, right? Well, two of us were like, well, you know what? Instead of being a criminal, my character is actually going to be a volunteer. I'm, like, the only person who, who actively volunteered. 
Mm. And the reason is because the Hellions squad came through some forest. I was playing an elf ranger who had been separated like a year before from his unit behind enemy lines in orc territory and was like barely non-wild, right? right. <laughs> like barely civilized anymore. Right. And they came through and saved me. And so I volunteered because I had nothing else. And then another character, another player who was always going against the grain was like, well, I want to play, I want to play a magic user. And the DM was like, all right, I already just said <laughs> no spellcasters. So of course the first thing out of your mouth is going to be But they sat about it, and they figured it out, and they decided this character was going to be, he wanted to play a cleric magic user multi-class who worshipped a god of death, and he was our medic, so, which none of us wanted to go see ever. Right. So he got to play the character that he wanted to play, but there was still this feel of what the DM wanted, which was... We had, we had one character jumped off a cliff into a pile of orcs and, like, broke a leg. He took, like, That's right, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Hit point damage. And this is back in the day where you, you recovered one hit point per day, no matter what level you were. Right. So the higher level you were, the longer it took you to recover, which was a very weird mechanic. But anyway, he, had, he was going around with half his hit points forever. And he kicked the crap out of us when we tried to drag him to the medic to go get a basic <laughs> cure wounds spell or whatever. And he... He actually just physically pummeled us and would refuse to go. So it led to an interesting role-playing moment even when the DM had just said, no, you can't. But as a, as a player, the player was also like, look, I know you said this, but can I work with you to, to make this work for everybody? Exactly. As opposed They're... to like, yeah, you said you didn't want orcs, and I don't care what you suggest. I just want to play an orc. Mm -hmm. I don't want to play a, a half goobly goo or whatever is in your <laughs> campaign. I want to play an orc, you know. So you got to be flexible as a Half, half goobly goo gonna be in tribality soon That's yeah absolutely right next to the pterodactyl whatever that Sean mentioned <laughs> last game too. yeah what is the uh what's the what's the shortened name for the goobly goo goober goober okay Goobers. all right <laughs> goober gosh so i mean some of the problems that come up or the challenges that we have as players are when you get to the table i think i think start in character generation so it's kind of the inevitable thing that we talk about. I think Sean mentioned this too in the in the pirate game was the the kind of loner syndrome, the I'm an orphan. And I've talked to I have a writer friend of mine who says that all of his characters are orphans because he doesn't want to write that dynamic, family <laughs> dynamic for some reason. Yeah. Right? But unless you have a character generation night and you guys it sounds like you guys get to have character generation Yeah, yes. we do. It's something yeah, but, we always tell our listeners, seriously, this is a great thing to do. It really is, and I think it's I think it's a brilliant way to go because it helps the DM and the players kind of understand kind of what they're building and how they can interact. It's but those not moments a... where you, as DM and players, can all work on that yes and and no buts together at a table to help shape each other's backstories mm -hmm. right. into the world the DM is doing, and hopefully right. all come to a point where it's not so much a compromise but a working together, and everybody's happy with what comes right. out, and everybody knows what comes out and understands right. why touched on some of those reasons like why you'd want to do a character generation night but the reason we want that is because you tend to have these problems that come up this loner syndrome mm -hmm. i mean if i'm if i'm creating a character in a vacuum and i don't know who any of the other characters are i might end up with a lawful good cleric and a party full of chaotic neutral crazy people which i did <laughs> right right <laughs> with, hey you right. still have a megalodon right right no yeah no megalodon. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no no but when I do, they all die. Yeah, right. <laughs> that and, like, I think Mitch touched on it earlier, too, this plotting your character out from level 1 to level 20. Man, that's... I, I, part of me likes the idea of that, just to kind of see how a character might develop mechanically. But from a storytelling standpoint, man, that really limits you. The whole, I, like, I want to play Batman. 
well, but Batman's 20th level and I can't be Batman. So I'm going to make a first level guy who's going to be Batman, but I'm never going to veer from this character development on this character from level one to level 20. It just sounds so boring to me. It's hard to get out of that rut, too, if you're so stuck in getting right. to level 20 with what you want, multi-classing and whatever else yeah, it is Yeah, I've do. noticed a lot of players come to the table with a character, and they come, they spend a lot of time deciding who that character is. Right. But what they don't think about is the story I'm going to be playing is going to give me chances to decide who that character may become. Right. And so, like, that unknown is not something they factor in, and really, with character backgrounds... People come to the table and say, oh, this is what he's gone through. This is who he is. And that's great. And backgrounds can be awesome. But the only story that that character's, unless you keep on going with that character, the only story that that character's ever going to actually be in that people care about is the one that you're playing at the table. And so yeah. if there's no character development and it's just the same character, is that really a good, strong character? Yeah. That story you're playing in should change the character in some way. It doesn't need to dra be drastic, but in some way, yeah. that's really yeah. a good way. I think that's why I like Kruor so much that I like... There's, oh, he's completely changed. There's Oh, yeah, there's been times where like I've come to the, the night and I was like, okay... Like I like I, I remember saying this the other week, I was like, can I have a ring of invisibility of some sort? Like, well, that's really expensive, I can't afford that. Could I start multiclassing as a sorcerer to mm -hmm. like cast invisibility on myself as a rogue? To become even more stealthy like you know it's just like if i would have had that like one made 20, all the way yeah. to one to 20 mm -hmm. those moments probably wouldn't have happened wouldn't have been like, I'm all so that stuck. work is erased to change yeah, another right, thing right. yeah well there's a, one of my one of my favorite character concepts came from a guy named chris west who i think i mentioned before he's a cartographer he does mm -hmm. brilliant yeah. stuff but he was talking about how he had this cavalier who died in the game and instead of having just like, oh, well, let's, let's go try and find 5,000 gold pieces worth of diamond or whatever, to raise him, the, the DM said, okay, well, it's a week later and you wake up on the battlefield or like where they buried you. Because he would have leveled at the end of that, like when he died. And the DM said, you now have a level of warlock and you're alive. Huh. And this, this crow, this raven from the, that had been eating dead pieces or whatever from the battlefield where you died is following you around. So huh. the, the player got to choose when they would use their warlock powers. And it was usually in some kind of stressful moment or like they were about ready to die or something like that. It was never like their first choice going into a battle. Right. The player got to choose that, but the character never understood what was happening. Hmm. It was like, man, that was lucky. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that happened. Like, you know, it, he casts a hex and there's some kind of disadvantage on, you know, saves or negatives on saves or whatever right. for the bad guy. And it just looks like, a, oh, that, that guy made a terrible roll against my spell. That's nice. That's the character's interpretation. The player knew what was happening the whole time. But then there's a decision in the, in the player's brain. It was a really interesting way to bring a character back to life and giving a good role-playing opportunity. A, a, a cavalier warlock is not the most optimized min-max character ever, <laughs> yeah. right? But uh, the player had a great time with it, right? And then he had to decide, like, how many levels am I putting in, into it? And what are these voices I'm hearing? And <laughs> being an open-ended kind of thing and rolling with things like that will allow you to develop your character in a way that you just can't do when you plan it that far. Right. So, yeah, but you were talking about backgrounds, Mitch. I mean, backgrounds are great. And as DMs, we always love backgrounds information to use. But one of the things that uh, I've taken to use, I got from a guy named Doug Easterly, who's a, who's a developer who's done a bunch of stuff over the years, a good friend of mine. He, uh, I don't know if he borrowed this from somewhere, but he came up with this thing called the three by five technique. When I'm creating a character, I try to provide my DM with this three by five. And a three by five 
they're three by five cards usually, but the three by five is you give the DM three answers to five questions. So three important places to you in the world, three important events in your past, three allies, could be family members, three rivals, and three enemies. Hmm. And you really are only supposed to provide like one or two sentences and that's it. So no stat blocks and crazy expectations, but like like important places. It could be the house you grew up in. It could be some open fields that you played in, you know, like a, a tavern or like a shop or like a bakery or something that your parents own that, you know, anytime you see a bake shop or you smell the smell of bread, it always makes you think of your family, right. a, la- a lake you played in, whatever, right? And it doesn't have to be this crazy, like, you know, the castle on the the hill where I killed the dragon kind of thing. Right. It's just these little places. And then the, the DM can bring these things in, right? Important events. I mean, you can go with kind of the classic slash cliche stuff. You know, my family's been murdered or the village was raised and my mentor was killed and I'm avenging him or that kind of stuff. But you could also just be like, you know what? I, there's this woman that I loved and I, I proposed to her and she turned me down. It, this was an important event in the character's personal past. It doesn't really have much to do with the game. But if the DM, if you give the DM these little bits and pieces of something, who knows what they're going to be able to do with that to, yeah. to tie it in, right? She might show up again somewhere. Right. Like, yeah, you, you, yeah exactly. You, you Maybe you help, like, a barn raising. Maybe you raise the church in your town or something. Or you save the life of, like, a small child, you know, at your village when you were a little kid. And whatever that happens to be. Allies. You can go with, you know, like, old school buddies or whatever. But you could also do something like it's, it's an old friend from childhood that isn't 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 an adventurer. He's like, this is my best friend. Like I've left town to go do these things, but I feel my life is boring compared to his. Like he made the harder choice, the harder choice to stay home, the harder choice to raise a family and to do all those things. And I'm jealous of this person. But if I if I need to go to him for help, I always can. And who knows what that's going to develop into again with the other players at the table or the DM. Rivals are great too. Like the best rivals, rivalries always kind of cross that boundary between friend and enemy. So like the Huntress in the Batman kind of universe, she's kind of a rival and she's kind of an ally, right? Yeah. Or Magneto. Magneto is a great oh, yeah. example, right? So he's a, he's clearly a rival. He you know he, early on he was written as an enemy, but he's more kind of a rival to Professor X, right? He has a different. They both have the same goal, but they just have different ways of going about it. Yeah. Right, so he crosses that boundary, which means that different times you run into him, you have a lot of flexibility. has a lot of flexibility. Oh yeah, well, about... Professor X calls him friend, like, and so right. does Magneto. Old they, friend, like they don't time. they yeah. don't see themselves as enemies. Rival would fit more, but it's they both want the same thing. It's just the way they want it is very different. Yeah, and that's that's why my jaw dropped when I saw the first X-Men movie mm-hmm. because I yeah. cause that opening scene in World War II, I was like, oh my gosh, are they showing Magneto's origin in yeah. World War II? Are they immediately making him a sympathetic character? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And then that first scene where they're, you're seeing the two, they, you know, Professor X and Magneto, right? But plus the fact you had like these two brilliant actors yeah, playing yeah. these parts, right? But they were friends. And so you, you're watching this movie through a whole different lens, Right. Because of this rivalry. And then, you know, trying to provide like maybe three enemies as well. And you could, you know, maybe put the same person in rival and enemy if you want. But, you know, the, the best enemies are always the heroes of their own story, too. So when you're providing an enemy for someone, it's not just the, the cliche is that somebody's out to kill you or, you know, whatever, hunt you down, which is fine depending on what you do with it, but maybe something a little more subtle, like maybe somebody just wants to prove to other people that you aren't who you pretend to be like they think you're pretending to be this great hero right 
but they know some secrets and they just want to undermine you. They don't want to kill you and they don't want to make you like suffer. They just want people to know the truth, quote unquote. Like they're they're on a righteous path so that other people don't have the wool pulled over their eyes like maybe they did about you, right? Or they want to prove that they're better than you in some way. Maybe they're jealous of you or or maybe you're jealous of them. Maybe you're the enemy of this person. Take it and kind of change it a little bit. Flip it, like I say, flip it on its head. You're jealous of somebody else and you want to prove yourself. But what does that make you to them? What, how are you trying to go about proving yourself? You're trying to prove yourself taking them down a peg. So you're the hero of the story, but they're the hero of their story and you're actually the villain. So there are and lots vice of... vice versa, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. You, can kind of, you can kind of play with these things, right? Or maybe it's like the Joker in the Batman films, the most recent Batman films, right? In Dark Knight, Joker was like, you have more in common with me than anybody else in the world. I'm here to help you realize who you are because you clearly don't know. Is he uh, a Lou Anders, who's an editor, or used to be an editor at Power Publishing, who's now a full-time author. That guy's a genius. If you ever get to hear anything that Lou Anders puts out, podcasts, interviews, you ever hear the name, like go to it because he will teach you not just about writing, but about it, it all, all applies to D&D and being a player as well, right? He talks about like the villain in Dark Knight wasn't actually Joker. Joker was an antagonist, but the, the, the villain in Dark Knight was actually Harvey Dent because Harvey Dent's, if Harvey Dent had succeeded in making the, making the city safer, Batman is no longer a thing. So the, the person who's opposing Batman's agenda is actually Harvey Dent. And Joker is more of an antagonist because the antagonist is often the character in a story who is trying to uh, make you understand something, like the dark shadow of who you are, make you understand something about yourself. Joker was total, and that's why Joker works as a completely chaotic character who never tells anybody his true origin through the whole movie. And you never know that. You know, some people just want to watch the world burn. Normally, that doesn't really work for a good villain because they need to be something that you can kind of understand and relate to. You don't, just having evil for evil's sake is really boring. They need to have that sort of mission to be that, that good villain, you know? Yeah. And you, in this particular case, he works really well because, yeah, he's out to watch the world burn, but his underlying thing, his underlying motivation for the, the character of Batman is to make him, quote unquote, realize that he's not what he thinks he is. To break his one rule. Because I think that's what right. he, like, says. Is I think he pretty much, he says that exact thing, like, you and me are the same, the only difference is you just won't break that one rule. And Joker's, I feel like a lot of times Joker's main goal is to get Batman yep. to finally kill him. Like, yes. he's hanging upside down on the building, and he's like, yep. drop me, just drop me. Like, yep. like break that one rule. Then you right. cross that line, and you and me are completely yep. the same. Right. Yeah. And he's doing it, I think there's part of him that's doing it, you know, of course, just to be an instigator, but also to, he. There, I think there's some part of, of Joker that makes him think that that's going to make Batman realize that he's a quote-unquote better person mm-hmm. somehow, yeah. like. Let me show you who you're, you're, you're completely delusional. You think I'm crazy. You're the crazy person because I'm not deluding myself. You're deluding yourself. If you just do this one thing, just do this one little thing, i.e. kill somebody, <laughs> you'll no be fine. Task. Yeah, you, yeah. Your whole world will be much better. It yeah. can be me. Yeah. <laughs> it can be me. I don't care who it is. I love you so much. You can kill me. It's not I take a bullet for you. I let you put the bullet in me. <laughs> right. Which, which again, takes that whole relationship, that whole really, really dysfunctional thing going on between those two characters, makes him interesting. Yeah. But, and, and, so there you go, like, Joker isn't out to kill Batman. 
that's too easy. It's too cliche. Give your DM just a line of something about why you think this person is an enemy and let your DM kind of run with it a little bit. Plug it into the story, you know, a little bit. But if you give them, even if you can't do three things of each of those five categories, that's still a lot of ideas. Sometimes I can't think of three. Sometimes I can think of two or one. Or I re reuse the same one for every character. But if I use this, reuse the same ally idea for every character, there's still tons of other information for the DM to use if he wants. So I don't see the same thing over and over again. Right. So three important, important places to you. Three mm -hmm. important events in your past. Three allies slash family. Family fits in every category. Yep. Right. Three rivals uh, could also be family. And three enemies. Do we want to kind of run down this list and just maybe give a couple examples of stories from our own campaigns, both from the DM perspective and the player perspective, how these five things can really help as a player to aid your DM in giving inspiration and to, as a player, make your viewpoint through that character change and be so much stronger and add to that character's story through just listing three of these five things for each category. So uh, the first one that came to mind, Chris, for me, when we talk about important places to you as a character was your character crew or from mm -hmm. my campaign. Uh, and I think two places came to mind that if you had wrote these at the beginning down on a cue card, you would have had these two places and they have affected the story. One would be Thessia, a, a place that your country, that your character has never visited in my world but wants to, and the second one being just your home, and the idea of home has shaped yeah. your character throughout the story. Kruor has always wanted to go to Thessia. That's when the group first met him. That's he was on he his was, way to he Thessia. He was on his way to the Thessia. land right next to where we are, yeah. We've played a lot in this campaign. Have you been to Thessia yet? No, I've been super close. <laughs> uh, but has that been a bad thing in your, like, has, like, how does that affect your character now? He still hasn't been to Thessia. Um, he still wants to go. I mean, he's got connections right next to it now with another, you know, the whole home thing. There was a point in time where he was, like, super stressed out with everything that had just happened. He's like, I need a couple days. My home is too far away. I'm going to just go south to the other Hobbit, or not Hobbit, Halfling land. Uh, trademark in, yeah right right cod <laughs> yeah <laughs> cnd or whatever <laughs> to the uh to the other halfling habitat or whatever you want to call village it there, village there so home was a big deal for him because he was stressed out he's like i can't go all the way home but i'll go to the next best thing home has always been a big deal to him because it was raided by orcs and part of his family was killed and he misses his family Thessy is another one where like his dad is a instrument dealer like he deals with instruments harps and like everything like that. And in a case of an instrument, he found a poem about Thessia. And ever since then, him, him and his twin brother really wanted to go to Thessia. But his twin brother was one of those people that was killed by the orcs oh. when they were raided. Wow, and so he's just... Really cool. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. So he like... And this he, is all this is all what we did on Character Creation Yeah, this creation is what we all did on... Character Creation Night. Do it, listeners. Yeah. So his, his brother was killed. And so for the longest time, his brother carried it like... Kruor carried around his brother's rapier with him because they were going to travel down to Thessia at some point in time, was never able to, and so he always wants to go there. He understands now that there's this greater mission that he has to do before he can get there, but he's also met like another halfling younger than him who's kind of like taken on that almost younger sibling role because Kruor was the older one and right. is like, here's the rapier, I'm coming back for you, and we're going to travel to Thessia now at this point in time, which is 
they're both right next to Thessia. So it's and I think we both have not giving away anything that's going to happen in the campaign, but I think you and I both have this understanding of it's going to happen at some point. Yeah. Probably at the end ish of the campaign. Yeah, whether yeah. it's an epilogue. Well, like, thing it might or be an like, like that, I've yeah. said from the beginning, yeah. I want to do an epilogue because we did it last time. We mm-hmm. played an epilogue night. Years in the future, here's what happens with your characters. Ending, putting an end to the story, it was a great thing. So character creation night and epilogue nights. We'll talk about <laughs> epilogue nights sometime more. But yeah, like having that and and you worship Yandala, mm-hmm. who's all about home. Yep. Oh, and you man. had to get rid of the poem. Yeah, I did. I had to get rid of it oh. because yeah, it was it was something. One of the missions was we had to give up sacrifice, something that meant something. Give up to something you? that oh. meant something to me that represented home, and that was the only thing I had. Wow, your like, DM's a DM's a jerk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was this moment of like. It was almost like Kruar had been holding on so much to this that he's finally like, I am not moving forward with this group almost until I let go of this. It's still going to be there, but I have to let go of this in order for us to get this mission done so that I can keep going to Thessia after this. So that was a really cool moment for for Kruar. And that's like, we didn't have this three by five concept, but in character creation night, you had those two, Thessia was important to him and home was important to him. Yeah. And it's been a re- reoccurring thing the entire campaign yeah, and always. added to it. Uh, both from as DM, it gave me things to work with. And as a character, you got to, you know, every time something like that came into play, it shaped the way your character reacted. Yeah. So that's, I think that is a really, that came right to my mind. Mm-hmm. So I think that also speaks to that internal dialogue I was talking about earlier. Like, though the other players at the table could be, could get and understand that this is an important thing to crew or like, you're feeling that in your head. Oh, right? yeah. That story is is in your head. So again, that the idea that that this internal dialogue about your character can sometimes be you know richer than what's happening around and can inform things, right? But you have to let yourself have those moments. Yeah. You know, I talk a lot about you know how orf- being an orphan is overused, but I had a had a dwarf character whose father died, and I think you can do anything, even the the, the cliches turn into classics when it's thought out and it moves a story forward right so this dwarf's father was murdered by a bugbear assassin because that even though there's guns in this world that we were playing in there was all like muskets they hadn't created rifles rifling yet right and so his father had created the first rifle okay and then his and it was had all these carvings in it magical or whatever but he hadn't had a chance to teach his son my character how to really use it yet so it was an excuse for me to have this item to carry through the campaign and as I went up in levels and learned more about it, I'd get a more powerful magic item and blah, blah, blah. Right? Right. But the one of the other players was playing a, a witch who had, like, like scarification on her and crazy stuff. And I just immediately decided she, he was terrified of her. Well, as the game went on, he started to realize, I noticed in my head as I was playing this character, that he started to realize that she was one of the only people he knew who might be able to help him unlock this the mysteries of this rifle that he associated with his dad Hmm. and so he went from being terrified of her to kind of starting to trust her to then not just trusting her but realizing that what he really needed in his life he what he really wanted was a mentor was this mentorship it's not just that his dad died it's just like his his mentor in life had died well right when i realized that that was going on with the player the next game that I didn't realize it, but the player of that witch had decided she, he wanted to play something a little different. And so that witch betrayed me to the bugbear assassin that killed my dad. <laughs> oh. Like we had just tracked down the bugbear village and then we ended the game. And then the beginning of the next game was the player Victor saying, I'm so sorry. 
And I just looked at him because I didn't know what was happening. They discussed this, the DM behind the <laughs> scenes. And I looked at him and realized what was happening when all these bugbears showed up. And I hadn't told him kind of the, the evolution of the internal dialogue of this character yet. Ah. So the the betrayal was way worse yeah. than he had realized as a player. And it was it, it was it was a it was a great, so satisfying internal moment to have that. And in my head, I was like, oh, my gosh, what is this going to do to this player or this character? Luckily, there was a TPK that night, <laughs> I guess. And I didn't have to find out. We all died horribly. Come on. You but, know there's still this internal dialogue going on inside of your head, right. wanting the questions answered. Right. But but it was all taking like the, okay, my father was murdered kind right. of cliche Princess Bride kind of thing, right? And takes it to a different level. Like, well, what does that really mean? Yeah, my dad was nice. I love my dad. I want to avenge my dad. But what other things are there? Where where do we take this to be different? It wasn't just about being a dad. It was about being a mentor. It isn't just about having a stronger magic item. Mm. So that was one of my example moments of taking an event and seeing it go someplace else. Yeah, for me, for allies and family, I think I have a good one. I played a an orc named Brom. He was kind of we we talked about in story time, like not playing the leader playing a supporting character and Brom was so fun because he was he, he was named Brom the Cruel and he was an orc fighter and he was dim-witted and slow but he joined this group of good characters <laughs> and they kind of had to rein him in a lot and yeah. he actually after I was done playing with him he continued on as when I was DMing he came back as an NPC and everybody was like cool we get to see where Brom's story goes yeah Part of Brom's story was that he was part of a an orc clan that was his father, who was still alive, his brother, who was still alive. They all bore the name of the Cruel. Like, his father was Throm the Cruel, and Brom was kind of always the runt of the litter, even though he was huge and strong as an orc for the group. But he was the runt of the litter. His father and brothers always picked on him and said he wasn't cruel enough. And so right. he came back as an NPC... And kind of allowed me to like go, all right, like took that as a what he was as the player, put him back in. And he ended up betraying all of the characters who decided to trust him. Because at his heart, he was probably kind of a good guy, but his past with his family just kept on making, screwing him up and screwing him up. And like he had to keep on proving to his dad and his brother who weren't even there that he was Brom the Cruel. Right. <laughs> and that betrayal went... <laughs> hurt the, a lot of the players and they still this day are like man i loved brahm but i can't believe he did that hey you're a jerk of a dm you do you've done that twice now <laughs> hey everybody keeps coming back to my campaign so it must be doing something right <laughs> i think that tragedy is one of the greatest aspects of playing a D campaign you gotta have that balance but tragedy yeah. can be a good motivator to character development any, any good story, I think. I think our favorite like movies and books and things like that will make us, you know, it, it makes you laugh, it makes you cry. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it goes to it goes to all those extremes, right? And sometimes just sitting sitting down and thinking about the three by fives just makes you takes your imagination to places maybe that you might not go to otherwise. Oh yeah. I, I played a monk character, and and one of the events that was in his life, I just went crazy, and I was like, hey, I was walking around the mountains, and suddenly this gate opened up. This magical gate opened up and these two guys came jumping out of this gate and they were some bizarre human species I'd never seen before from another dimension planet. I don't even know. They didn't speak any of the languages we know. 
and their language was impervious to being uncovered by comprehend languages and they were twins is all we could figure out and I grew up with them that was okay. it I was like <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen with the I, they were kind of allies and they were also an event but I, in my in my character's head it was like oh the, the world is the universe is bigger than I thought it was right but I just handed it to the I was like I'm not responsible for making these guys make sense <laughs> now it's your turn yeah, here you right. go which can be good, but you don't always want to be putting the burden of your PC's character development on the other players or on the DM. Like, giving the DM loose strings to work with is kind of your job as a player, and, and hopefully your DM appreciates that to an extent, without kind of hammering the story out and expecting the DM to, yeah. to follow your your thing. Which, which kind of brings me to another point, like putting the burden of your character's development on other people instead of being flexible enough to be a part of a group, right? I had one player in my game who was playing this horrible... He was just a no, no, no. I'm not doing that. I'm not motivated to do that. My character would never do that. I don't know why I'm here. I'm like, okay, well, figure it out. It's like, no, it's not my job. It's the other player's job to figure out how to make me stay. I'm like, I, okay, yeah, well... We've, I think you, we've all dealt with that in do, some way, Do shape, you form, know yeah. what it would take to make you stay? No. Okay, so you're having them chase <laughs> a moving target? Like... Yeah, that that's just it's 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 entirely unfair, right? Oh, and yeah. you can you can make it interesting, and you can push those things around for for other players. But it's also our responsibility as players to be able to like you know what I I don't think I would go on this adventure, but I'm clearly want to play this character and want to play in this game, so I'm gonna pretend like I know why I'm going, and I'm gonna make this choice, even though other people are like, ooh, why are you making that choice? I would never see you make this choice. And you're and the player's like, I don't know why I'm making this choice, but I'll find a reason later. And you, you may find it's a really fascinating reason as other people are giving you suggestions or you're talking it out or, you know, you're in the shower a month later and <laughs> suddenly an idea pops into your head and you're like, oh my yeah. gosh, this is a great, great reason why he went on this adventure. And you kind of retcon it, right? Retroactive continuity. You, you retcon it back in your own head about the reason why and it, it suddenly can inform all of the decisions you've made. Yeah. But if you just say, no, I'm not doing it, you guys figure out how to get me to be in the game, then all the other players just want you to go home. Well, and if you and have a whole stop. table full of those kind of, that people yeah. with that mentality, and a DM with that mentality, I'm not changing my story for you players, no matter what you do, right. then you'll never play D&D &D again. The whole table, right. everybody's going everybody's gonna to go home. It's not going to work out. And, I mean, that's that's character development. We've talked about Han Solo, we've talked about all these characters that it wasn't in their characters to do the things they did, but they did them, and there ended up being a reason for it, even if they at the time didn't even understand what it was. That's character right. development, and that, that makes your character interesting. The character yeah. always says, no, 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 that's not, because I think we've all probably said it at some point, we've all definitely heard it, no, my character wouldn't do that. It, whether it's said in that way, or whether it's said in a nicer way or no my character wouldn't do that so deal with it i'm not going to do that like that's putting a stop to that story uh, like yeah, you need to you need to figure it out yeah it's 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 going back to that yes and or no but tool it can still be no yeah. it's like no but i wouldn't go through this portal but i just realized i have a crush on one of the other player characters <laughs> and i can't let them go on their own or go. i or i have this grudge this guy i keep arguing you know, player this character i keep arguing with i'm realizing the reason why i argue with this character is because i actually am really jealous of him for some reason mm -hmm. and so i may not even realize that subconsciously yet but i'm going through this portal right yeah i think of crew a lot in this aspect because he was bound and determined to head to Thessia. his brother had been murdered not very long before that and he's like 
I gotta get to Thessia. I don't care what it's gonna take. I'm getting there. And I stopped in a bar or in a in an inn where everybody's staying, and they were like, "Hey, we could use your help on this." I was like, "No, like I, I have this mission to go on." Right. And like I think they ended up talking to me and like, "Look, you can't go there by yourself. You don't know what's going on there. Like you have no idea what's in this land. You just have this poem." Yeah. And uh, they were like, "You help us with this, and we'll travel with you there." Mm-hmm. Right. So it was it was this moment of like, okay, that's probably what it would take for me to to go there. Yeah. That's kind of what I had in my mind. And for story's sake, I was like, yeah, he'll go with him because he knows that he has help now going into this land. Yeah. Well, I love the like the this idea of the epilogue you guys talked about. I've never actually really heard of that. That's a that's a great idea. And I have to give you guys some credit because there aren't that many things over the decades that I've heard that, <laughs> that I haven't at least heard some version of. That's pretty cool. And I was even picturing in my head when you were talking about like Kruor's never going to get to Thessia in the game. <laughs> right. That's yeah, the way I would not. write as a prose writer. That's the way I would write the story. Like it, the the final scene I see with you is like a tearjerker where you're standing at the border right next to the sign that says, you know, you are now entering Thessia. Maybe it was a heart attack. And, and, no, no, <laughs> no, no, that's just being a joke. <laughs> but 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 maybe even just leaving him there. Yeah. Like maybe he's all this his whole life he wanted to get there, but as a as the reader just making like leaving the reader wondering, there are lots of reasons he should go, but is he a different person now and does he not need to go and right. is that okay? Like that's just a great character development point, where that if you were like no I'm going to Thessia because I have a really cool background and once you guys hear about it then you're all gonna want to come with me right? Let's forget this DM's plot let's just go do something yeah. else. That's just uh, yeah. There's just a, like a giant list of reasons why that's yeah, not. Yeah, and good. like he's he's made enough connections now, and I've I've honestly been thinking through that too. Like, does he still want to go there? Like, he's got a connection mm-hmm. with a halfling kid that he wants to raise up and take over the Riders of Shemesh. Right. He has the Riders of Shemesh now. Like, does he need to go there? Does he not need to go there? Mm-hmm. Does we'll he want to turn return to that dryad that he fell in love with? Oh yeah, yeah, he fell in love with the dryad too. Like. Didn't I, want to leave the dryad And there's going to be too, things yeah. that happen in the story that I know you're going to take and go, how does this affect Kruor's oh, yeah. end ending, like the ending of his story? Um, and I'm really interested to see how that works with yeah. you. But, yeah. yeah. So we've talked about different aspects of being a player. One thing we talked about at the beginning of the episode is that we're all individual people. We're all looking for different things. That comes through yeah. to our characters, but it's also a team game. Right. And one of the best parts about it is that when you're playing and you're playing as a well-oiled team machine, whether that means there's conflict but it's good, but the players are all having a good time being part of a team, that is when I think D&D is at its best point. It's the most fun. That's the greatest thing. So what are some things, knowing that we as players, when we play a game, when we play D&D, when we play role-playing games, have different viewpoints, have different things we're looking at, what are some ways that we can realize that and make the D&D experience a better experience for everyone. Every edition of D&D, for sure, and I think a lot of other role-playing games talk about what kind of players people are, right? So as a DM, how do you... At the beginning of the, the fifth edition DM's guide, it's like the first five or six pages, I think, there's a, there's a list of, of how as a DM to understand how different players play and then how to encourage that play in those players, which is great, which is definitely necessary. But when you have players at the table, it's not like we're all just sitting around waiting for our moment. Like, how do, how do we as players, how can we encourage 
other people with different playing styles to have a great time, but also still play our character. No, nobody likes somebody who's just sitting around the table reading a book or being on the internet because you know they're the kind of the war gamer fighter you know person and just waiting. Plans. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or the other way around, like you've got a you got a you got a bard skill monkey who doesn't isn't really built for combat, and so there's all these combats, and then the bard just sitting around just talking you know, in his head like how frustrated they are that this game sucks because I can't yeah. get to do my thing. Another Nobody, battle. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's just, that's uncool for everybody. And it's, it's especially uncool for yourself as a, as a player. Like, why subject yourself to that? Yeah. So there's six or seven different, like, types, generally accepted types of players. So you have your, your actor, right? Somebody who's coming to the table. It's like my friend Matt. My friend Matt was all about the story and about acting out these characters, mm-hmm. right? He loved playing in LARPs. He played the vampire LARP and helped me um, with our other friend Pete run this werewolf LARP I mentioned for two years. That was back and, when you had the mullet, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't technically a mullet. Wow. It, it, I, I, can't, I can't fight that much, no. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so the, together we made a much better team than we did individually, but part of that was because Pete and I knew the rules and, and Matt didn't care. He was all about, like, how can we make this twisted and interesting and whatever. So that player at the table, like, one of the pros of that player is that they get really involved. When you're acting on the stage, if you have somebody who's not a very good actor or is just stoned and you have nobody to play off of, then you don't have much to do. You can't carry a scene right. by yourself, right? And so when you have an actor, you can get really inspired by these people who really get into these parts, right? Even if you don't make funny voices or do weird ticks with your face because of the PTSD your fighter had or whatever, it, that doesn't mean you can't learn something about kind of what they're doing or how they're doing something. So paying attention to what they're saying and, and how you might be able to incorporate it is great. But if you're not that interested in being an actor, how else can you do stuff? The actor wants to talk to everybody. You know, we were joking earlier about like, you know, why do you need to talk to the merchant for 15 minutes? That clearly was not a key NPC. Well, the DM's going to try and roll with that, right? They're going to try and get information to you through that merchant. They're going to try and do the do what they can to make that interaction interesting in some way. So if you're playing a, an explorer character, somebody who likes to explore the world around this fantasy world and is more interested in kind of like this world building idea or you're playing like a problem solver, somebody who likes to solve puzzles, right, in your group. Like, oh, just get me in a dungeon with some crazy rid- riddles you've written down. That's what I want to do. You can listen to the conversation that's happening and encourage the conversation to go in the ways that you kind of want. Not just saying like, hey, do you know if there's any weird places we can go explore? But like, if the merchant's talking about, hey, I just got a shipment from some far-off bizarre place, have your character start asking about that far-off bizarre place. Like, are you from there? Like, do you know people from there? Like, how often do you get stuff from there? What kind of interesting things do you have from there? Even though you're an explorer character and you're not acting, you can still encourage and support that person in doing the thing that they like to do, right? The con of an actor is sometimes, like I said, they don't really care about the rules. And right. so that can be a challenge. So as an actor character, it's, it's important to not make, make it so that everyone has to explain every rule to you all the time. That's one way to make it a little easier for somebody else. And then you get like your explorer, right? Your explorer wants to just exist in this world. In writing, we call it a milieu story. Like for the Lord of the Rings, a lot of these characters in Lord of the Rings are pretty, I mean, Gimli, Gimli is a dwarf, and Gimli is every dwarf. All dwarves <laughs> yeah. are pretty much the same as Gimli, right? Right. All elves are Legolas. Now, there's some variations on the theme, but generally they're the same. You never say that about a human. Right. Humans are always different. But that's carried over into D&D a bit. So in, in the story of Lord of the Rings, it's really what we call a milieu story. It's about these characters who are interesting in their own ways, but they're really 
traveling through this fascinating world and showing you these languages and these songs and these places they go to and the politics and all those kind of things. And sometimes players, that's what they're really interested in. What's the world we're walking around in? And how can you encourage that kind of player? Well, that player constantly wants to leave town, right? (laughs) They always want to go do the next thing. Like, you know, that kind of player is going to be sometimes less interested in, okay, we're playing a Fafford and the Grey Mouser city game and and we're just going to be in the same city the whole time. Well, as a DM and as a as a play as another player, you can maybe try to encourage that the idea that every city, if it's a metropolitan city in any way, is going to have different districts with different cultures and different places. There's going to be, I mean, most of the time when you're playing in a game like that, you're not going to play in a tiny village with 400 people in it for your whole campaign. You're going to be in a cosmopolitan city that's on a lake or a river somewhere that has trade and travel that's going to different places. You don't have to necessarily go to these places to satisfy the explorer kind of player. But you can talk to them, you can ask them questions like, maybe their character has explored all these places, and now they're settling down. Now, as your character, you could constantly ask them when somebody brings up the random, like the tattooed one-ear elves from the dark forest of Goomba or whatever, you can, you can, you can look at that explorer player and go, have you ever been there? Do you know what that's all about? What, 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 what are they talking about? What are these tattoos? What are these happening? And if the DM hasn't fully explored their world, the DM can let that explorer player just make stuff up. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe they've been to one village in a, in a forest. It's not going to undermine your entire story. Yeah. If one village in a forest had some weird custom that they juggled geese or something, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let, let, that, let that explorer character help to build the world as much yeah. as explore the world that they're in. They love that kind of thing. One-armed right? tattooed elves who right. juggle geese. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, the downside of the explorer is, like I said, they always want to go someplace else. And they're the kind of guy they, that they get to the port city and they want to, even though all the goals and stuff are in this country, they want to jump on the ship and go to the, go next, to the country. next country. <laughs> right, exactly. And so if you are an explorer character and you know that kind of that's the kind of player you are, and being aware of what kind of player you are is really important. But if you know that that's the kind of thing, then you can find other ways to satisfy that and talk to the DM about ways you can get that satisfied without having to force other players or, or do the, no, I'm not going to do that, I went on the next boat to the flaming aisles of whatever. And as other players, like, Chris, you were kind of a little bit in that boat with Kruor, with Bessia, mm-hmm. right. and the other players helped you to be able to cure those ills, in yeah, a sense. Right. Like, like you, it, wor- it all worked out with the help of the other players. It was good. But I don't think that that takes away from the fact that Kruor is still an ex- explorer character. And yeah. that's, and that's talking about an individual thing for a character, but I think, but what we're talking about too is that unless you're really flexible, you're going to tend to fall in one or two of these player right. styles. I love having a good fight. I love having that strategy and I love having the storytelling and the acting. I'm never going to be an instigator. It's, it's just never going to happen. I just don't instigate and I'm <laughs> never going to be a min-maxer. So my characters are never going to be optimized because I'm much more interested in the story. Like, I'm not going to try and make my character just broken so he's completely worthless, but I'm not going to be working to try and make him the best, right? right? So there's always going to be some things that you're not, that other people are, and sometimes those can grate on you. So understanding kind of what they are, right? So like the instigator, we're talking about Mitch. It sounds like Mitch is a That's pretty me. good pretty good example of an instigator, right? So the upside is that the instigator... Goes out into a sheep and does spell failure. <laughs> and yeah, I'm the guy who sees a small town and the DM goes, there's nothing here. And I go, yeah, there is. There's <laughs> a story here somewhere, man. Right. Well, and that's kind of the upside of the instigator. Like, the, most people think an instigator is like the kender thief who's just taking all your stuff and being a jerk. Sean. Oh, <laughs> 
And Sean, yeah, when he was a kid. Are you calling me a Kender? No, I'm calling you exactly not a Kender. So, but an instigator is, at their core, the instigator wants to see things happen. So the upside is that an instigator typically, like, intuitively knows when the story is getting slow and bogged down. And as a DM, watching your instigator at the table and, and learning when that they're just about ready to pull a trigger on something is really important, right? As a DM, you're like, I think, Mitch is getting distracted quick. Somehow. Well, Mitch, Mitch started out being a troll and will always be a troll. Yeah, that's true. You know, well, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not at all. I never actually play the troll, but I should play a troll that trolls. But okay. so let's, let's, let's think about a different kind of instigator, right? Somebody who wants to, okay, you go to a, you go to a city. It's all a very lawful, good city. Your instigator is the kind of person who just wants to balk at laws, right? Right. Well, now you have a player who's maybe a lawful, good ca- character. And so this instigator, cliche-wise, kind of stereotypically would not want to hang out with the instigator, right? Well, as you as a player, maybe you can find something about a law in this city that grates you. Even though you're lawful good, that doesn't mean you follow every law. So maybe there's right. a really – you can work with this other inst- this instigator. What, what kind of surprise would that be when your instigator's like, I'm stealing the statue from the museum? And your lawful <laughs> good cleric is like, I'm totally helping him with that. And have the instigator like, wait, what? And like that instigate the instigator that <laughs> museum that needs to be sold back to wherever it came from or whatever. And I'm I'm totally with you on this, right? So I, how would that be make the instigator feel good? Like, oh, cool, I'm not just fighting the wave every time. Like maybe I love right. fighting the, you know, the inertia of the game. But I mean, even then, it's like having somebody on your side for once for doing these things is can be really great. The downside of the instigator, of course, is the fact that it really – the worst instigators are really just drawing attention to themselves and drawing and dragging away from other people. So if you are an instigator, just knowing when to draw the line. You can instigate, but try and instigate as much to move things forward and to make things more interesting as it is to just screw with plans because you don't – nobody's going to want to play with you after a while. And then you better not get upset because nobody wants to play with you because and... that's just like common courtesy. Like you said, if it's a drawing attention to yourself kind of thing, it's going to be clear. <laughs> and if you're an instigator, and I have never thought of myself in that way before, but I absolutely am, like involve the rest of the group. Uh, like that sheep story that you brought up, Chris. Yeah, that's um, a great. If I didn't get the other, yeah. if I didn't get the other group members into that, and I just had to do it by myself, that would have been so boring. But having the whole group like go, hey, let's go have drinks. All right, now follow me, guys. You'd still be out with your your wife sheep out in the field. You never would have left. I probably I wouldn't have wanted. That's the thing too. And talking about players helping each other, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. I would have been like, nah, we can just move on. Like I don't care. Like, but I wanted to have a fun moment with the rest of the players, and that happened. Um, If they didn't want to, I don't. I wouldn't have wanted to role play that by myself. That would have been boring. Right. Uh, the DM is always worried about what is my player going to do next. And if you have an instigator in your group, it's 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 what is that person <laughs> fill in the blank X going to do next? And the thing is, you have to I mean, we, you guys talk about it a ton. You have to you have to learn to think on your feet and you can embrace the idea of the instigator. Like I said, you can tell when your story is bogging down, when your instigator is about ready to punch a guard in the face. So that's something that you can do as a DM. You know, my DMs, I hope I want them to pay attention to that. Right. And the instigator is a great litmus test for kind of what's happening. Kind of the, the fighter war gamer, too. Like I said, like the game started as a war game. So I introduced a guy to D&D um, in fourth edition. Your guys 
passion for fourth edition knows no bounds. I know. So uh, <laughs> there were there were there were some things they did really well in fourth edition, and there were some things they really really didn't. But this guy, he's not a, he's not an actor. He's not a storyteller. He was kind of forced into doing a lot of theater when he was in high school and stuff like this, and he just didn't want to do that. He just liked to win. He liked to deal the most damage and do the area of effects. He would every time he threw a freaking fireball or whatever the equivalent was, he would add, okay, so I did 20 hit points to six different people. I did 120 hit points that round, and nobody else could do 120 hit points in a round. Yeah. And like the first few times, it was cute, but then after like game 20, I'm like. I love you, man. You're like one of my dearest friends. Stop doing the, the math, right? Like it's okay to just be there. But but then as a DM, I had to sit back and I'm going, you know what? This is how he has a good time. Right. So it's not my job to tell him how to have a good time. Now, of course, I never said that to him, but this is an internal thing as a DM. I had to check myself on myself, like my judgment about how to have a good time. I'm trying to force him to do something he doesn't want to do. So the upside about the fighter is that the kind of the war gamers that they're going to know those rules, man. They're going to mm-hmm. know them really, really well. Now, that can fall into the rules lawyer trap where they're correcting you on everything. But it can also be something that when they go into a, go into a fight, it's going to be really well thought out. And hopefully they're making a character whose personality is like that. It's more Captain America than I don't even, I don't even know what example to use. But you're playing, if you're playing a character that has no idea about tactics, but the player knows a ton about tactics and is using yeah. out-of-character knowledge... That can be a little uh, tough to roll with, but encourage them to play those kind of characters. And when you get into a fight as other players, man, tell them about like, you know, one of the one of the things I enjoy doing when I have like a fighter wargamer as a player is to as a player talk to other NPCs about how awesome this person is. You don't want to mess with him. Don't right. mess with him. <laughs> yeah, don't right? make him angry. You don't want to make this guy angry, man. Let me tell you about this time he did 120 hit points in a round. <laughs> Right. Like do something that in, that encourages that war gamer out of combat. And if you are that fighter and you have a bard who's always talking to merchants all the time, make yourself that bard's bodyguard. Clearly, that bard is terrible in combat. Move yourself into feeling like you have a protectiveness of that person. You don't have to act or storytell or say anything. You can just say, I'm standing behind him and grunting. Don't mess with my little adopted brother or whatever. Do something so that you get yourself into the combat instead of get get yourself into the situation instead of just sitting in the back. And the downside of the fighter is just that, really, just sitting around waiting for the next fight and drawing energetically from the table. Just try to be aware that you're doing that and participate. Uh, And then the the optimizer is like the the (sighs) min-maxer. I'm so not a (laughs) min-maxer, and they really, really bug me. It's really frustrating to hear people say like, oh, but if I make a... Level three rogue, level six warlock, level twelve paladin. I can do four hundred hit points on round two, so it's totally broken. I'm like, I'm gonna punch you in the face right now. Like, <laughs> like, how, what character concept is that? That you're a paladin, warlock, rogue? What? Like, you're only looking at the numbers. But then again, I'm a storyteller and a role player, right. right? And so I have to check in with myself about like telling other people how to have a good time. Okay, so the upside of the optimizer is a little bit like the fighter, like whatever they're good at. I know optimizers who who don't care about fighting. They're optimizing skills and social stuff, right, or optimizing their spells, right? They're not a melee fighter at all. They're just trying to figure the right spell combinations to do really cool stuff. Like they can be really cool. And and the same thing that's an upside to like the fighter wargamer is the same thing that's an upside to an optimizer, man. Tell other NPCs about how cool this character is. Because if you can release that pressure valve a little bit, then they, the player doesn't necessarily feel like they have to be telling everybody all the time how cool they are because, oh, they got my back, right? The other players can see 
how cool I am. And they're telling people in the, you know, in the game how cool I am at certain things, whatever it happens to be, or encourage them on that front. It really makes a difference. As a min-maxer, the downside is if you know that you're a min-maxer, just take a step back. Like, it's game mechanics, and it's really cool that you can plug all those pieces together and make a really, really cool thing. But realize that, again, that's not how everybody has a good time. And kind of anybody, not anybody, I won't say anybody, because there are people really good at it, but it's just game mechanics. Just keep that. Just I don't know. I don't know what else to say. You guys have any input on that? I mean, yeah, I know you guys have um, played some min-maxers before. The min-max, at their worst, can be game-breaking. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I would speak to any listeners who are players and are min-maxers, one of the things we're saying is, how can you make the game a better experience for everyone at the table? Including yourself. Including yourself. Right. And as yeah. the min-maxer, you need to realize, if here's the thing, if you're playing with four people and every one of those people is a min-maxer, honestly, that's probably the best situation because the DM can right. go, alright, I'm going to throw really strong creatures at you and you guys will enjoy it. Right. But I've played with groups that It'd be one or two min-maxers, and the other two guys, they're all about the story. They're not there to spend hours building their characters up from level 1 to 20 and just min-maxing and going crazy and that stuff. And it gets to this point where it's like, in battle, I could tell as the DM, focused on all the players, that the two people who weren't min-maxing were having a terrible time watching Mm -hmm. as the min-maxers destroy everything, and they're hardly beating AC because it leaves you as a DM in this hard position. And so as a min-maxer, please realize as a DM, you're either going to, you're thrown with the option of, all right, do I put in creatures that the non-min-maxers can hit, but the min-maxers are going to devastate and then the battle's over in two seconds, or do I put in stuff that the min-maxers have a tough time with so that the non-min-maxers can't hit, feel worthless, and it becomes this really hard thing as the dungeon master. So my biggest advice to min-maxers would be work with your DM. You're good at what you do. That's awesome. But you restrain yourself a little bit. Because if it's making problems, the rest of the group... I, I've had players come up to me and tell me before, I don't want to play with this person anymore. Because it's ridiculous what they're doing. I don't like. I don't like what they're doing. It makes my character feel worthless. And... That's not – nobody wants people no. to come up to their DM behind their back and say, this person does not make me feel good. So realize that you're good at what you do, and your character can be awesome, but maybe you need to make them a little less awesome. Maybe you need to make them a little more well-rounded, and then the game is going to be more fun for you. Because that whole, look at me, look how awesome I am, nobody really cares to look at you and see how awesome you are. It's a team game, and – if it's a look at us as a group, look how awesome we are, or like building each other up, that's great. But if you're just there to be like, look at how awesome I am, there's really only one person at the table who's looking at you right now and thinking how awesome you are. Everybody else will start <laughs> yeah. to get annoyed. And it'll, yeah. it, it, you know, min-maxing is a way to play, but it has been ripped ripped apart by a lot of people over the years because it's it's frustrating when your other people are not min-maxing so just if you're a min-maxer, just realize that. Realize the thought process of the other people at the table. Realize you're playing with friends, and you're coming to the table for to have fun. So realize you might need to restrain yourself. Talk to your DM. Talk to your players. Don't become an issue. I think, I think that's, a, that's a straightforward lesson for every player. Let other people shine. It's a very common thing to say for your DM, like a DM lesson, like 
PMs, please let each person shine. You might not need to let every person shine once in every game. That'd be great. Like everybody should shine once in one game in a game, ideally. But that's not always going to happen. But let everybody shine at some point in time. So the min-maxer, when they're shining, like maybe you do want to throw that fight in where the other players are just realize, oh god, let's just pull the pin on Chris and throw him into the room because. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, none of us are going to be able to deal with this and give that min-maxer that opportunity. But you got to, yeah, you got to kind of mix it up. Let, as a player, let other players shine sometimes. Just yeah. let, them, let them shine and see what happens. Also, go back and listen to the flaws episode. Figure out a way that, okay, I'm really min-maxed except for this one thing. Like maybe mm-hmm. watch your kryptonite, right? It doesn't have to be a game-breaking kryptonite, but something. It, try it. Like we say with every advice that we give to a DM, Every time you talk about DM, try it. See what you think about it. Then you can at least say you tried it. Yeah. Right? And the last two are the, the problem solver and the storyteller. And the problem solver is always just trying to fix the problem, whatever the problem happens to be. And it could be like the best strategy for a combat or it could be like fixing a riddle or whatever. And that's it. Not every DM is really good at making riddles and putting up puzzles to be solved. The, the downside to a problem solver is that a lot of times they solve your problem within a minute. <laughs> Too quickly. Yeah, Yeah, too quickly. Um, And then that can be a problem. Then they're not satisfied. And nobody else got to play. Right. right? Nobody else got to play at the puzzle. As another player, if I know somebody, I I had a player in my game who was a problem solver, and she, man, God, it was just freakish. I feel like I'm a pretty smart guy, but she would put, (laughs) she would make leaps of logic of pieces of information that I hadn't even revealed yet. So (laughs) under my, like, it would just pull the rug out of whatever I was planning three games down. And I wasn't quite sure how to deal with that. But that's really kind of what she wanted to do. And so I just made more of them, made more of them. I tried to make them as complicated as I could. And as a player, I wanted to encourage her, like, again, the whole idea of if your character in character is talking to other NPCs in the game about whatever it is that the player as a player is really good at, then we talk a lot, too, about as DMs listening to what your players are just babbling about at the table because a lot of times they'll have better ideas than you do. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that was uh, much better than what I was thinking. I'm totally just <laughs> that. Yeah. Right? Encourage that conversation with the puzzle solver. Like, what does the puzzle solver think is happening? Because if the puzzle solver may have figured out something far more interesting yeah, that's true. Than, what you were, than what you were planning, and that's the upside of having a problem solver. Yeah, I um, constantly like to ask the guys about the mysteries of my campaign and say, what's your theory on this? What do you think is behind this? And a lot of times I already have, most of the time I already have an idea of what the answer is. And I just like to see where they're at uh, to make sure I'm adding enough mystery that they're not figuring it out. With that, like, that I'm making it mysterious enough that they're not like, oh, it's obviously this. But I've had those moments where I've, like, heard somebody share something, and I've had that internal monologue. It'll be like, I think it's this. And I'll have the internal monologue, no, but. <laughs> right. That's actually really cool. And most of the time, I don't just go, all right, that's it. Because I would rather not sure. be like, yes, I'm taking your idea. I, I want there to be a surprise element to it, but I have gone that if I tweak this and make it a little bit like that's really good. Chris, you actually just figured out something in recently in my campaign, yeah, I'd... which was kind of funny. He, uh, we they found a a child that had. Uh, we'll share more in, in a story time, but the, uh, 
we found a child who had fallen from the sky. They thought it was a fallen star. Little babies there. And a couple of them know a little bit about my lore. And there's like these, Bokob like has these five arcane humans that he sends to Earth. They're fallen stars. And one of them is this Bastion Windsailor who we've talked about before. And so Chris kind of metagaming. I was like, I, I said as crew, I was like, hey, can we give her to some parents like to take <laughs> care of? Like, or can we give him to some parents that we take care of? Can we possibly, like, if I have my saves crew arc, can we name him Bastion? And he's like... <laughs> and I just shake my head. I'm like, yeah, I'll have to talk to the parents, but Bastion sounds like a good name for this guy. <laughs> nice. And Chris had everybody at the table just start laughing because they're like, oh, we figured it out. That's cool. And the people who didn't figure it out was like, whoa, good figuring that out, Chris. <laughs> but it was just that moment. It was, yeah. it was really cool. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, there are lots of, I mean, there's different kinds of problem solvers too, right? So there's the tactical problem solver. Like you guys had JM on board, right, yep, to, yeah. on, on podcast. JM's been playing maybe, I mean, I think he's been playing three or four years, but he's yeah, okay. a, that guy's like borderline genius as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, and one of the one of the things he's having come out soon is called the Adequate Commoner. And he's big on yeah, figuring out. Yeah, he's about that. Yeah, so cool. I, I did some development on it for him, and it was just brilliant. And Talk about taking, like, Pathfinder characters can be really superheroes when they get to a certain point. And so challenging your players by giving them commoners as a class, suddenly other things become more important. Like, what's your race? Well, if your race suddenly has access to, like, uh, certain weapon proficiencies, that's huge when you're playing a commoner, yeah. right? Or Giant. magic, for that matter, like any kind of magic or whatnot. Yeah. Well, JM's a problem solver because he's a tactician. He's the, he's the Captain America of the group, usually, whether it's politics or... Or, uh, or getting the right combos on the table, things like that. So I have to, when I'm, when I'm DMing him, I'm always trying to figure out ways to make things, make the combats more tactically interesting. Mm. Now, that can be really good for the fighter. It can be good for the min-maxer, right? It could be good right. for the instigator. Um, it could be good for lots of different, lots of different situations. And the last is the storyteller, which they, which they kind of put in a separate category in the DMG for fifth edition, but it's kind of the same as the actor, really. I mean, a storyteller might not be an actor and vice versa, but typically they're more interested in the, the, the overall story arc and what's kind of happening. The downside to the storyteller is the same as the actor, where sometimes they're just not that, they don't care that much about the rules. Yeah. So that drags behind. So if you are a storyteller, again, pick up, pick, try and figure out at least the basics of right. what you need to do. And, and asking questions is always fine. But every single round, every single time, which has happened, is, 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 is frustrating for everybody. Yeah. And then if you're, if you're a player at the table, encourage the storyteller by asking them what's happening. What do you think is happening? Like, and again, that as a player, that helps the other players, the, the storyteller specifically, but also helps the DM. Because then suddenly the storyteller is going to go off on a, like we just talked about, like on a tangent of something that the DM could slowly write some notes down while nobody's noticing right, about right, how yeah. cool that is, right? Because yeah. that's what somebody is really fascinated about and put some pieces together. But that person's usually the one who's taking the game notes, sometimes writing a blog about the game, things like that. And that's a good way out of character and out of even game for the for the DM uh, to encourage the storyteller person. Hey, can you write the game updates at the end, post on the website or the Facebook group or whatever it happens to be? And they'll they'll love that just as much. Typically, the storytellers are want to be writers, so they kind of want to do that kind of thing. So those are kind of the ways that I mean, as a player, you can encourage other players. And I think it's important. The biggest one being like, let other people take the spotlight for whatever it happens to be and try and check in with your own flaws for your own, you know, particular handful of types, player types that you are as well. And make sure. I guarantee if everybody at the table shares that mentality, 
you'll have the best D&D group and the best time. Right, right. Yeah. We say a lot, like, the best stories have to do with the DM, like, who you're playing with, you know? Like, the DM and then the, the, the other mm-hmm. players. You get a good group together. Um, it can be great. But the reason why we're doing this pod, right, we're talking about how there's just not that much about it. There are techniques to be better DMs, and nobody seems to get offended by getting ideas for being a DM. Right. But try to suggest ways somebody can be another player, and it's an immediate, like, I'm coming to play the way I want to play. Just deal with You're it. attacking me as a person. What right. And one, yeah, and one of the things that we want to emphasize here is that, yes, we DM, but we also play. Right. We're also players. And so, like, we're we're right there with you guys. Like, we have these moments, yeah. too, so we understand. And folding, finding ways to fold those other players into your narrative, too, no matter what kind of player they are. Decide that somebody's, you know, your brother or a twin. That's pretty common, right? But, mm-hmm. like, decide some other player has saved your life or saved one of your family members or helped you track down a villain or do something. Not just that you even actively did it yourself. Like, like saying, like, oh, we worked together to track this villain down. We just, uh, you, you took down a villain that murdered my family before I had the power to be even able to do anything about it, and I'm so grateful for you doing that, right? Or suggest how... Like, your PC can be folded into other people's narratives, too, right? So decide you're going to play second fiddle to somebody else and see what it's like. The Toby Jackson thing, right? Yeah. Decide you're Chewbacca to somebody else's Han Solo, right? Chewbacca Everybody doesn't, loves Chewbacca. Right? <laughs> Chewbacca has no lines ever, right? Ones that like, we can understand anyway. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, I, it's probably good that we don't understand him, though, the way that... <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes the dialogue. Goes. Him and R two D two seem a little bit dirty in what they say sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Right, but like you can, if you decide some other player, like you're gonna play, like, hey, by the way, I have a blood oath to you. You saved my life, and now I have a blood oath to you. And the upside and the downside are that I'm gonna do a lot of what you do. I'm gonna do right. a lot of what you say that I should be doing, or that kind of thing. Like. I, I have a ton of fun doing that. Not everybody's going to, but give it a try and see what it's like to to not be in the forefront all the time. It's actually quite relieving in many ways. Like you're letting somebody else take the front and you can just, oh, I don't want to be a part of this conversation. I don't know what I would say in that conversation. Well, that's okay because I can take a break, mental break for a minute. Right. I can let my blood oath guy take the lead and then I'll do whatever he does. And that's perfectly okay to do. Another thing that I really, really like, another idea is this idea of the reformed villain. How about if your character was a villain or an enemy of another player character who has now redeemed themselves and is trying to make up for whatever that was? So you have this really complicated relationship between you and another PC where you used to do terrible, terrible things and you're trying to make up for it. Right. right? The, the redemption story. Yeah. yeah. And it ties it into another player. I mean, of course, we make these backgrounds and we're like, oh... I'm a reformed villain, but we don't typically tie it to another PC. Like, I'm a reformed villain that murdered your brother. That's where you kind of go, yes, and. Yeah. Like, I want to go yes, and to that story. Like, ooh, yeah. how am I going to deal with that? And yeah. how am I going to relate to you? And and then that it puts it a little bit in the other player's court about, like, are you going to be a jerk? Are you going to be gracious? What if that other, What if you're playing a lawful good cleric that believes in redemption, but another player character is trying to redeem themselves, but they did something horrible to you or your family? That can be a really great internal dialogue, right? So there's lots of different ways that you can, and don't make the DM figure all this stuff out all the time. The DM has, I don't remember, I don't know if we mentioned this before the conversation or not, but having players giving DMing a try. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they understand the amount of work. Yeah, DMs love what they do. I don't know any DMs who DM 
because they hate it. They all love it for nope. whatever reason. <laughs> I can't, I can't yes. think of any I either. Can't either. But it can be intimidating, I guess. I don't know. I've been. I mean, I've been running games since I was a little kid, so I, I yeah don't get the never having been a DM. But I can kind of understand that it can be intimidating. But if you have a group of players that are really encouraging, or you have a couple players that you play with that are really good people, good friends, and you have a DM who's like, I'll help you out with the rules. Don't worry about the rules. Come up with an adventure. And they immediately yeah. see how difficult it can be to balance yeah. all these things. I almost wonder, too, like if people that have never DM'd that find it intimidating, it might be because they don't think they have a story to tell, or they don't mm-hmm. think that like they're going to people are going to like their story as much as the you know the person that's DM before them. Right. I think the great part about you know having other DMs, and I think for me, what's helped me in my DMing, and what I you know I think I could say has helped you in this campaign too, is having other DMs who have been DMs as players will help you like write that story too, because we understand like we want you to succeed at this. We want you to understand. We want you to have a good time and to get a feel of what it's like so you can reciprocate that back, you know? Yeah, it's right. definitely huge advice to players right now. Try it out if you've never tried it out before. I mean, who knows? You may open a door and find yourself never wanting to go back to playing because you love it. I love it so much. It's awesome. Yeah. But you will gain an understanding, hopefully, of that side of the screen that you didn't have before. I think one of the most beneficial things is Sitting as a player, you're you are very focused on your character, and that's a that's a good thing. It's a natural thing, but when you sit on the other side of the table, you should, as a DM, be concerned about everybody there at the table. Mm-hmm. Right. Like everybody needs to be taken into account, and that perspective can really change your perspective as a player. Like I'm not the only person we're here for. Um, right. so I, definitely, I think try it out and give it a try. It can really and for players who have people who are players and want to try out DMing, who are new DMs, like, especially for you rules lawyers out there, be gracious and understanding and helpful. Don't hinder. For you min-maxers out there, don't come up with a crazy, crazy character that's going to make that new DM not know how to handle combat. Help people who are trying to DM out. Like, don't yeah. be a hindrance. Help them DMing out because is, it could open a great it could open up if you if you hinder them, you could stop yourself from having a lot of great stories in the future. And if you help them, you could open up the doors to worlds and stories you've never played in before. Yeah. Anybody who who tells me, Hey Rich, I want to run a game for a little while, do you want to play? It it's a huge, huge opportunity for me to do something else. Mm-hmm. And and I love that because I get a chance to play the rules in a different way and I get to interact with my players in a different way. And as much as you love it, like you're saying, it's a lot of work and it's exhausting and it's really nice to have somebody else come in and just do the work and let me play. If players want to play, they need to encourage their DMs. They need to encourage other players. Basic common courtesy. Learn how to tell your story, tell the story of your character inside the stories of other players at the table and the DM that's trying to do something. doesn't mean you need to follow a railroading from the DM or anything like that, but uh, as a DM you should try not to railroad. But definitely find a way to make your story flexible enough, make your own mind flexible enough to be able to tell your story within the context of everyone's stories. Yeah. If you're not letting the DM DM his story and being a part of it, you're not letting the DM have their fun as well. So yeah, be exactly. a part of their story. Engage in their story. It needs to be, like we said, it needs to be a everybody at the table has this mentality of helping each other out. And like if the DM is concerned about the player's story and the players are concerned about the DM story, once again, you're going to have the best game ever because yeah. of that mentality. Absolutely. Absolutely.
so that's that's all we have for you for the meet. Uh, hopefully, uh, we have a lot of stuff that we talked about. Hopefully, you players and you DMs who are players enjoyed this, and it gave you good ideas of not only like inspiration, like we always like to do, give you guys ideas and stuff, but also helped you get a better sense of ways as players you can be helpful to your DM, you can be helpful to your other players, and you can just have a better all-around experience. We are not going to say goodbye to Rich. He's going to continue on down the path to the light bulb with us, and Mm -hmm. we'll say goodbye to him at the end. So let's head to that light bulb. Light bulb. All right, so for this week in the light bulb, we are going to give you uh, some ideas as players of what you could possibly play in upcoming campaigns after you talk with your DM and your other players to see how you can incorporate backgrounds and stuff like that into them. But we 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 just have a couple of them each, and I think you know, Mitch, if you want to start, we can you could share some of your ideas, and then we'll just kind of go around. Sound good to you? Uh, yeah, I'll start. Uh, my first one that I came up with is. Straight from, people have heard it from Storytime, straight from your world, Chris. The character that I'm playing right now, I highly recommend trying out a wizard barbarian. <laughs> everybody, on the internet, yeah, everybody on the internet says, don't do it. It is so much fun. Uh, I think it's fun. Like, just to give you an idea of some things that I did with it is, I'm a wizard barbarian, a wizabarian, or a barbazard, whatever bar- you want to call it. Barzard? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I worship two deities. So you, I worship Bokob and Kord. But you can, like, mix and match, like, all different kinds of deities together. Like, one focused on magic, one... Fo- and uh, what happens when you specialize that wizard, necromancer, barbarian kind of thing. But so he worships two two gods. He's intelligent, but at the same time, he's super hot-headed. He's strong, but also strategic. So taking the two aspects, making them one, it's a blast. I highly, highly recommend doing that. So that's that's my first one. I think I think too, like the reason why people on the internet say like don't do it, it isn't because of it's a cool role playing or an interesting way to play it. It's because it doesn't min max. Exactly. And that's that's the worst reason not to do something, in exactly. my opinion. Agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, mine. Uh, one of mine is uh, alternate magical archers are always fun. I'm just a big archery superhero fan. Green Arrow, Hawkeye, Hawkeye all those all guys, guys, right? Yeah. But aside from the Arcane Archer, which is a pretty cool class, it's much better in, I think, Pathfinder than in 3.5. I think they fixed some of it a little bit. Um, in 4th edition, they had something called a Seeker, which was kind of like an Arcane Archer, but it was with uh, Druid spiritual spells instead. Mm. Like you would fire an arrow into a crowd, like I'd fire an arrow, and when they, wherever the arrow landed, like all of these spirits came pouring out of the arrow and doing oh, stuff cool. to the people around them and things like that. Psychic Archers, Dreamscard Press for Pathfinder has uh, there are tons and tons of new classes. One of the Psychic Archers is really cool, psychically charging arrows. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of the idea of the Zen Monk Archer. It's a really hard build to make. Like you have to do all kinds of crazy like spreadsheets and calculus and Pathfinder to get one that actually works. But I just love the idea of that. This martial artist that's more Zen. This Kudo Zen Archer. I love those kind of alternate magical archers, and I'd really like to play them more. Cool. What about you, Chris? If you play a Tiefling, having him be like this depressed Tiefling, who is a necromancer, and his only friends are the undead. And so <laughs> every time that they disappear, he just gets even more sad. Uh, or he's got these friends that are constantly trying to kill him, but he's like, 
he thinks that because he's a necromancer, those are his only friends in life, and people don't trust him. <laughs> so, like, this weird, like, constantly, like, depressing circle for this guy. So it could make, like, an interesting story of, like, coming alongside of a group of friends who actually care about him and watching the interesting dialogue that happens at that <laughs> point in time. And then they start, like, killing his friends. So, like, how did, like... How do they handle this? Because they're trying to get attacked by him, too. So I think that could <laughs> yeah. be interesting. Well, we have a, a player who's playing a character in my game that kind of inspires my next one. It's a, He's playing a warlock slash witch. The character was an orphan, but was found sitting outside the burning orphanage, reading her book of fairy tales. And oh, she, whenever she casts spells in the game, she's reciting nursery rhymes. <laughs> like, you know, the equivalent of uh, London Bridges, you know, ashes, ashes, we all yeah. fall down kind of thing when she's casting burning hands on things. And she's and it's very quiet, like she's humming it like yeah. under her breath uh, and she's being influenced. Horror movie type. Yeah. <laughs> influenced by this fairy tale book of children's stories that it's like Grimm's fairy tales that are just horrid that we don't know where she got it from. And in uh, in fifth edition, there's a there's I think it's an invocation or something the warlocks get like when they drop a character to zero hit points they they uh, either heal hit points or get some temp hit points or whatever, and she calls it eating her sweets. It's a really intriguing, <laughs> really ma- and this is the kid this is the game I'm playing the lawful good player right. again right. Oh, Goodness. Um, the way that we connected our characters was that she was adopted by a temp by a, a my mentor at the temple. From gotcha. the orphanage, and he hid that book when she was a kid away, and and she seemed to have an affinity for magic, so she went to a magic college and stuff, but that didn't work out well because her mm. magic's all from the book. It was a, it's a great concept, and and uh, I, I I just love it in a they, really step way. They make up their own nursery rhymes, or are they using like real world? Ones? Sometimes we just kind of hand wave it. We're just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, it's the like, equivalent of teddy bears. Magic picnic or whatever except it ends in a horrifying murder or whatever right. you know what i mean like we, he makes up yeah. little stories around it without having to you know be creative enough to do the whole thing well but that's such a great like idea if you are that storyteller kind of player like yeah. you could literally make little stories and tell them in a nursery rhyme kind of way and yeah have that be for the spells that yeah. you know. The easiest way to horrify me is put creepy little kids and little kids oh, yeah. in, yeah. in, yeah. in a story, though, man. Oh, God. That'll creep anybody out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my next one is a Minotaur. You play a Minotaur kind of brute character. But this Minotaur has a heart of gold. He's not like the other Minotaurs. He's a good aligned Minotaur. He's still dim-witted, but he's lovable. But he's misunderstood, of course, by most people. He's feared by most people. But he's found a home in the group that your PCs are. This PC group that he's part of, they're his family. Like, he's not understood by his people. He's not understood by other people. So he's found this group, and they like him. They accept him. So that's his family. To add to that, what I really like is if you have the Minotaur not smart enough to speak common, so he strictly speaks speaks giant, you'd have to work with your players to do this, but if your other players speak giant, then this Minotaur is going to be able to communicate with his group, but then you go into a town and he's not going to be able to understand, like, what they're saying to him. People are not going to understand him. So, like, it adds even more a necessity of, like, your group being your family, your group being where you want to be. And he'll protect this group like his own family at all costs, so... Uh, that was my my second idea. I really like that idea. I really enjoy playing those brutish, sidekickish kind of characters that are there to help 
the other members of the group. It's a lot of fun for me as well. It's like the Toby character I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other, one of my favorites is this idea of like the bard druid kind of Mm. combo. So a nature singer. And I guess you could just play it as a druid with like special effects or, you know, the bard has a few druidic spells. You can kind of do some things, but I always want to make like some kind of new, uh, I'm sure it's going to show up on tribality at some point, but some kind of bard archetype that incorporates that druid thing. But some of these character ideas I've had, and I've never been able to pull off in any edition. Like I played them in fantasy hero or something. It's a much more flexible system, Uh, at least until fourth. And actually as static as fourth looks, it was actually allowed me to do a ton of interesting things. And in fifth, it's going to do the same thing. So I was able to make this bard druid soft multi-class of a bard with druid spells that uh, was actually peaceful. Mm-hmm. So she wouldn't kill things, but she would charm them, and she would oh, help sure. the help the then buff the player character. She would buff the other players. She wasn't like lecturing everybody and wagging her finger about like how they shouldn't be fighting the evil goblins or whatever. But that doesn't mean she necessarily gutted things either. So yeah. she would charm monsters and have them fight each other, or she would buff the players and stay in the background and, and cast heals and do things like that. Um, she herself wouldn't actually take the knife to something. No, not because she was snooty about it or anything. It's just right. like, that's, I don't, I'm not okay with that, but I know that things need to get done. Yeah, right. Right. And, and she would definitely step in and have a conversation about like, what is our purpose in doing this? Like, if we're here to stop the kobolds, is that in having a conversation with their with their chieftain, or is it murdering all of them? Like, how do how can we maybe do this a different way? That doesn't always work in a D and D world, but sometimes. But I love the idea mostly of like I call it calling singing down the lightning. She starts to sing and storms show up. I just love <laughs> that visual, you know. Yeah. I just had a visual of you, your head on a bard druid, just going through the woods, and you have mice. And and birds following you as you, they're singing Cinderella, it's the, the, Cinderella. Yeah. So uh, my next one is whoever you're playing is a half elf half elf ranger who once was royalty, but because he had an accident where he was blind in one eye, lost like depth perception in it. it like for a ranger who shoots a bow, that's kind of a big deal to be able to tell right. like depth perception and stuff. And so this person has had to live with this disability for years and years and actually didn't feel welcome in their home anymore. And so is kind of like off wandering through the through the wilderness, kind of like the I think you shared it, Rich, where you come across this ranger who is kind of almost lost their like, oh, they're not civilized anymore from the Hellion campaign. Yeah. 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 And so but it's because they they have this depth perception issue, but yet they've seemed to overcome that and now are just a one-eyed elven ranger who is a part of your group now. Yeah, uh, That reminds me of, we talked about Dritz earlier, but in the yeah. Dritz storyline, there's a, Dritz meets a uh, an archer who's completely blind. Oh, really? Uh, but he's still amazing, because he's attuned his other senses. Hmm. And I, like that, like, even taking that a step further to have a character, like, if you like flaws in your character, what if you played a blind archer? Who had to roll a listen check? I think he should get a plus to a huge plus to his listen check, but like roll a listen check to have to determine where creatures are that he's trying to fire at. I think that'd be a lot of fun yeah. to play. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, that kind of falls in my Zen monk archer kind of thought process too. Yeah. I kind of like that yeah. being able to sense the universe around you and firing instead of right. relying on the eyesight. And kind of speaking of the monks, you might see a little bit of a theme here, but you know how martial, some, a lot of martial arts, particularly kung fu styles in the real world, are all based on, like, animals? 
So taking that to the next level and having a monk who, you know, studies tiger style, but can take it to the point of shape-shifting as well. Yeah. So again, oh, that yeah. kind of where I was talking about a bard druid earlier, but this monk animal druid, and it, you could do it differently too. You could also kind of combine it with that Zen monk, Zen monk archer, but the animal of they're basing this, you know, Kyudo or Kyujutsu, which is the martial art of firing a bow is their, their totem animal or whatever you want to call it would be like a yeah. hawk or an eagle, yeah. which would be very, very, very cool. So taking it that taking that taking that animal style to the yeah, real like real animal, Absolutely. learn learning it by talking to the animal instead of just imitating the animal. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my next character, I don't have a race or a class for him. It's just this aspect that I think would make him really interesting. So right out of the story, if you've seen the movie, and I hate the movie, and I know there's a book about it, I haven't read the book, but Benjamin Button. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that idea of like, what if you played a character? who aged backwards, how would that change your backstory? How would that change how people up until this point have dealt with you? Because in the story of Benjamin Button, like, his father, like, wants him to play with toys when he's, like, looks like a 70-year-old with children, and all the other children are creeped out, and he doesn't even want to play with toys, but he does it to please his father. Like, like how does that affect your backstory? How does it affect who you are? What age are you at when you play in the campaign mm-hmm. and what age are you really like yeah. what, what age do you look like and what age are you really i think that'd be a really interesting thing to have added in as a as a player obviously uh with my next three of them it's like these are things you want to talk to your dm about and be like all right let's work through this together but yeah, to say even if the player doesn't know how they ended up that way yeah too, exactly like having yeah. that mystery of their own backstory could be really Spell failure <laughs> yeah something like that yeah. well that was the that was a, a concept about merlin i think the classic merlin yeah merlin is that he remembered yep. the future because he ages backwards i don't yeah, know how I, that chronologically I don't think he ages backwards <laughs> right. i actually looked that up uh I, I don't think he ages backwards but it's a he re- yeah he remembers the future and he doesn't remember the past so like yeah. when he said when people say like their final goodbyes to him like or there's death like it doesn't mean anything to him because he remembers the future he doesn't remember the past but when he says the first hellos and meets somebody it could be like a really tearful experience because he <laughs> once again like it's weird and yeah. it, it, like that's the kind of thing I'm like I try to like wrap my mind around I'm like oh that's really like it's blowing my mind just thinking about it but yeah, yeah even like take that concept as a that'd be a little bit I feel like more difficult to play. It'd be tough. I think you'd have to just select key moments to yeah. make it be a thing, and otherwise, otherwise play it normally. But then, like, don't try and again, it's drawing too much attention to your own character every time yeah. you're in a conversation. But like, yeah. you know, every couple of games, you have like a moment where people go, right. "Oh, that's right, yeah. you remember this thing or whatever." Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. So one of the things that I, maybe it's because I've you know been in the medical field my whole life, but one of the things that I always thought about with any kind of rogue character in D and D that has that sneak attack is playing like a medic, like you're a healer, but you have this sneak attack because simply because you know the anatomy of what you're fighting. So like, not that you would be this like min-maxed, you know, in the fight doing tons of DPS kind of medic, but it's like, don't make me use my powers for evil. Like, don't make me, don't make me use my knowledge to have to save my life because it's going to go really badly for you. We had uh, Jam's wife actually was in my uh, Jade Region campaign, and she played a vivisectionist alchemist. And this was her first, really first, well, maybe not her very first game, but it was it was an early game she'd played before. 
but that was part of it. The vivisectionist archetype replaces bombs with sneak attack, and that's the the whole theme is that they just mm-hmm. know anatomy so well they know exactly where to hit things. Yeah, she that was a really cool character, and she played it she played it really well. Yeah, I, when you were talking about that, I thought of I thought of two things. I thought of the movie Gangs in New York with Bill the Butcher, and there's a scene where he's talking about human anatomy and saying that pigs are very similar to human yeah. anatomy. And so yeah. he's got a pig hanging. And he's trying to teach somebody. He's got his knife. And he's going, this is a wound, this is a wound, this is a kill. And, like, he'd do it over and over again and then pass the knife on and be like, show me. Show me if you can do that. And I thought of, like, that because of what you were talking about knowing anatomy. And I thought back to your comment about JM coming out with the commoner. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so if you were a – if you're doing that, if you're a butcher – Maybe that's something that your butcher gets. Like he yeah. he gets sneak attack because he understands right. where the anatomy is in something. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. In that he has these like commoner feats that it doesn't completely replace a class feature, but you get a feat that gives you a little bit. So you might take yeah. a whole feat to get one d six of sneak attack, exactly. you know, or something like that. Because he doesn't want you to just make another class. He doesn't want point. you. Yeah. He doesn't. Yeah. Right. But if it's a good role playing, yeah. if it's a good role playing mm-hmm. aspect, then that would be very yeah. cool. Uh, harkening back to the aquatic game, taking I got this idea actually because there's a there's an author Howard Jones who's doing some Pathfinder stuff, and he has an archaeologist character. And we were talking about I think he has an upcoming book coming up where she goes underwater. She has like a lizard folk ally of some sort, and she has to go underwater to do some stuff. So we were talking about aquatic stuff at the last Gen Con. But then I thought about what about the other way around? What if you had like a sea elf or a lokathar or something that could spend extended periods of time? above water that doesn't have a lot of the aquatic issues and they're a land archaeologist they're coming on from an aquatic city in life and coming on to the strange new surface world to try and find out these things whatever anything about surface life so now it's like common it's kind of like that little mermaid like what's this fork for yeah right you know you cook food what is that all about like yeah you know, how do you use this mysterious fire? And, like, it could make some really interesting role-playing moments yeah. and give a great excuse to have a land, uh, aquatic character in a land game. Uh, my next one is, I did this, Mitch, you got to experience a little bit, but being a gnome barbarian yep. <laughs> who, that's like, I, I, as much as I hated playing a gnome back in the day, like, that was what I was thrown out to be, I've played a gnome barbarian in a lot of, like, one-offs because it's, like, it's just so much for, fun for me to be able to play. Uh, but being a gnome barbarian who has a brother in the group as well, uh, they're always rowdy and always fighting each other, I think would be a blast. Me and my roommate in college tried to do that in your campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think of like, when I was thinking about this, I think of like a bug's life with the two little pill bugs that roll in and they're like, yeah. hey, you buy it, you buy it. That's kind of like, that's kind of like what they do in the group. That's like, that's their mentality. So I, I love playing that. It's funny that's come up a couple of times in my my gaming history. Um, one of them, that one pair of them, they were twins. They were called the Ginsu brothers. We called them. Oh Ginsu really? <laughs> yeah, they just carved through everything. It was awesome. <laughs> well, I actually had this. It ended up coming up in the conversation earlier, but like the idea completely stolen from Chris West about this cavalier or a paladin or some character who dies and has some interesting way to come back to life. You know, they had like a revenant race in um, fourth edition, and I made a soulbound version of that kind of thing in fifth edition. And I, I hate, I hate resurrection in D and D games. It just the whole concept of that bugs me. Who cares if you assassinate the king? Just raisin. Like it just removes all kinds of drama. It just yep, bugs me. Yeah. Totally but get it. 
but finding it, but having a character die can be a really like traumatic moment. And if you realize, oh, I kind of screwed up as a DM, and I really overly, I didn't intend to TPK or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And and finding other interesting ways to bring a character back. And I thought when Chris was telling me about this character who came back, and now he's got like these warlock levels. That's a great way. Like, what happened while you were dead? Yeah. What did you agree to this? Was this forced on you? Why if is you this ag- Raven following me around? If now? you agreed to it, what conversation was that? that you agreed to this to happen. Well, and if you were right? in the dead and you don't remember that conversation, right. and now exactly. you have to slowly like, figure these things out, it's and like, is oh, there crap. is there a reason you don't remember it? Like, did you make that part of the deal that you don't want to remember the conversation? Like, there's yeah. so much interesting stuff you can do with or it. Or is it something like you are all of a sudden being, you, like, hear this voice in your head where you're being given these missions to carry out, or you actually will die again? Like, it's, right. it's almost like your life is being hung in the balance by whoever made this right. deal with you. Yeah, are you being blackmailed or was this? Yeah, yeah. This you, what if what if you find out it was your idea in the first place? Yeah, like yeah, there's, there's so many so things many you could do with that. Do with that, you know. Yeah. And even if you don't go a whole like new class level or anything like that, maybe you, as as your DM, you can make that as an excuse to instead of getting magic items to your players. I like giving like blessings from a god or some minor like an extra bonus feat equivalent of something, something that's basically like a magic item that prevents characters from running around with 50 magic items sticking off their back you could give them like suddenly they have dark vision now they're human with dark vision well you could have just given them goggles of the night or whatever but instead now they have dark vision all the time and (laughs) they've come back to life and they have dark vision and they don't know why and then you could just play everything else as you know role-playing opportunities right my next one is entitled becoming the monster so what i have envisioned for this character is a race whatever you want it to be. But this is a monster slayer who takes whatever monster he kills and he crafts them into either weapons, clothing, armor, or accessories. So examples of this would be like, kills a dragon, wants to make a dra- a sword out of the dragon's tooth. Kills a, a minotaur, he wants to carve out that horn and make it into like a warning Boromir type horn. Uh, kills a direwolf, makes hide armor out of it. Mm. Uh, just has necklaces that are with teeth of his kills. Poison snake teeth arrows. That'd be mm. cool. A beholder eye stalk that he turns into some kind of a charm, which you could take like a, possibly he takes like a beholder eye stalk, and beholder eye stalks all have different spells, so make that into a charm for some somehow. Dire turtle shield, <laughs> tower shield. Just uh, like all these cool things. Every time you come to another monster, your character, your player would be like, what can I make out of that? Yeah. I, I think that'd be a really fun thing to do. And as mm-hmm. just envisioning as you, the more monsters you slay, the different your character looks and the scarier looks as he has all these different things added onto him. That same character that JM's wife was playing, that vivisectionist, it just ended up becoming a shtick that's kind of like that. Like every time she kept, they kept running into randomly a lot of shape changing crazy creatures. And she kept like anything she killed or anything that died that was a monster, she was always taking parts of it. Hmm. right it's the same kind of idea and she ended up like i ended up giving her like a bonus disguise self formula because she had just played this role playing so well picking up all these like a doppelganger and this kind of stuff and and researching it and so as a dm i was like oh you get bonus formula for your spellbook or whatever and um because you always want to encourage that kind of thing in your players right so my actual next one was um these last couple of mine are actually characters that i had made up for some short stories I i originally made them to play them but they were kind of difficult to play in D&D, they, I, I played them in um, Fantasy Hero again, which is, again, very flexible. And then um, I wrote some short stories about them, and I, const- I can never stop thinking about them. And one of them is – it's an urban monk. 
So you always think of monks, they're always in the monastery or they're Asian in some form. But in this particular case, it's a group of orphans who have been, it's kind of like the, um, you know, you get a bunch of orphans and then somebody, you know, uh, gets them and trains them to be thieves, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in this particular case, they're training them to fight spellcasters. They're witch hunters, basically. Okay. So they're training them in these martial arts techniques, but they're not, they can be from any culture, right? These orphans can be from anywhere. You could just leave it at that because particularly in third edition, one of the weird side effects that nobody quite realized until we got it on the table for half a decade was that <laughs> monks, monks were awesome at just taking down the spellcasters. The speed they move and the grappling and the concentration checks from all the flurry of blows and like all this stuff just ended up being like, well, that's your job. That's the monk's job, apparently. Is Go to after like, the spellcaster. Is like to get through all of their bodyguards and then just grapple them and then they're in <laughs> trouble. It, it plays on that kind of idea. They're just not Asian. In a form, it, it would only really work in a city. Well, I, actually, I guess you could do it any way you want. But I mean, it, it, ideally, it would work in a world in which, uh, like, magic is still more mysterious, right? You were mm -hmm. talking about in your world, Mitch, that you guys are playing in a time frame in which arcane magic is still not really known and it's not really trusted, right? It would work great for that. But you could do it in a in a, in a world even like Eberron. But maybe the cult of personalities around some totally insane guy who's training these people because he thinks that magic's going to ruin the world. So, you know, it's going to take Eberron and turn it into the Dark Sun Athos, the Wasteland, or whatever that kind of thing that you want. In uh, the way that I make them, they have these different unique psionic abilities and stuff, so they're kind of like psych psionic monks is what they are, but just not the monastery kind of monk, or even Asian at all. So their names wouldn't be Jet Li and stuff like that? <laughs> no, no, I, 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 the organization I call the, the, the Children of the Wandering Star, because they come from all over the world. But, uh, yeah, no Jet no jet Lees. My next one is actually a monk as well. He's like, this kind of came off of, you remember Tyler's brother, John, right? The monk that he yes. played? Yep. He was, he oh, like, yeah. he like didn't want anything to do with like material possessions at all. Mm -hmm. So, but he, but he had some, he had like some material possessions, but I took it to the next level where you're like the overly friendly monk. So you're like the yes man from the yes man movies where you're just like, <laughs> yes, you can take it. Just take it. Like, so mm -hmm. he'd be like willing to give like whatever he had. Like somebody's like, can I have your pants? Yeah, take them. Yes, just like, yeah, he just like takes them off and gives them to the guy. So I had this idea like he like people in the party will have to stop people from asking for his goods because it's kind of like the rumor of whatever city you go to. Like this guy will give you whatever he has. You should try it. Just <laughs> do it. And so like everybody in your group is like, no. They have to like say no for this guy. Like, no, you will not. You will not give your pants yeah. to this guy who's asking for them, just to be the trick or just to be the joke of the the party. You gave your pants away again? Oh, come on, man. Nice. That's another. That's another good character concept. Like some earlier editions, I think monks and paladins both had restrictions on what they could carry and use yeah. and magic items and how much money they could have. And man, that's in certain editions, that's just game breaking. Because I think they took that out in third. Uh, that can be a game ring, but it's also a good excuse to use, like I was saying earlier, other ways. I think they talk about in the fifth edition DMG actually other ways to reward your characters with magical tattoos or whatever. They're the exact same game yeah. mechanics as a magic yeah. item. It's just that it's not a physical possession, right. and it's the same thing. So my last one is actually is one of my favorites, one of my oldest characters' uh, ideas that I, I think it lives in me because it's so difficult to do. And in this one, it was a it was a paladin who who had fallen in love, who was he was in a war with another country. He fell in love with, uh, with a woman who he brought with him on a uh, campaign, but that woman had a lot of influence on him and it convinced him to use a, a different tactic during a battle the next day. That tactic led his, you know, 250 men into a box canyon. And in that box canyon, demons appeared 
and slaughtered all of his men. And it turns out this woman was, you know, a, a sorceress, an enchantress of some sort. The souls of all of his men were put into a demonic gem to power mm. this demon, this demon prince's magic. And he was turned into an undead assassin for that demon. Now it's, it's hundreds or a thousand years later, whatever you want to do. And a wizard confronts that demon, defeats the demon and shatters that during the fight, this gem shatters. That's got all these souls, these men in it, and ends up scattering all across the planet. These things become really, uh, like other magic users find these gems, and they're like, wow, there's a lot of power in this. I can make a magic item out of this. And so they're making magic swords, and they're making shields, and they're making wands, and they're making all this stuff out of these gems. They don't realize that each of these gems has the soul of a person in it. And so since the demon's dead, now this undead paladin comes back to the planet with no master and is traveling the world trying to find these gems and shatter them and return his, let his, his men's souls go back to wherever they need to go, right? But what ends up happening is he's basically a lawful good paladin that's undead, but everybody thinks there's this undead scourge that's destroying magic items is basically huh. all they know, like... He's hunting down wizards and adventurers and spellcasters, and he's taking their magic items and destroying them, and they don't know why. But having a, having an undead character is really powerful in early editions. So again, that, that same um, concept I was talking about, the, the Revenant in 4th edition and then the Soulbound that's on uh, Tribality. It's either on Tribality or Games Change Lives. I have it posted. It was designed specifically to create this. You could either make it a paladin, or in 4th edition I made him an avenger, because they had a lot of ghostly powers. In 5th edition, I would probably make him a vengeance paladin, which is a new archetype that has a lot of um, different, very non-paladin-y abilities, but it's a nice twist on what he can do. And in my mind, he's just, he's a skeleton. But he has an illusion over him that makes him look, you know, maybe emo, goth, human, or whatnot. <laughs> but in my mind, he's always, he's, he's always actually just a dead skeleton body. Running undead, like I said, as PCs is a little tough to do, so you got to find some ways around that. But I just, I love that character a ton, and I, I got to play him once in Fourth Edition and uh, loved it. He, the, the, the DM was more of a, a war gamer than a storyteller, so unfortunately I couldn't play up some of the angst. Well, because he's a very story-heavy character, or story-heavy character. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you can play that actual idea in various ways, but, but another way to bring somebody back from the dead. And you don't even have to have him be undead. I mean, he could come back and be a, get his body back and then still have to do the same thing, you know, yeah. be an elf or human or whatever you want him to be. Yeah, I like that's that That's awesome. <laughs> cool. That, that's one of the cool parts that if you're a DM listening who's not interested in playing, that'd be just something sweet to add into your lore of your game. Like, that's really cool. Thanks. But that'd be even, that'd be even better to play as a character. <laughs> that's really sweet. My last one is also my favorite from my list. What if I told you you could play as a hill giant at level one? Well, <laughs> I as DM would totally allow this next character, who is a hill giant. Uh, you are the cursed hill giant. So you were a hill giant that was evil, but a powerful wizard put you under a, cur under a curse that made you shrink to D&D &D small size. And it's a permanent spell until he says that you prove that you turned from your evil ways. Nice. So now what you have is you have a super fat... So then you fat... turn into the BFG. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the big now it giant. looks like you, you're a super fat, dim-witted halfling. <laughs> and that's what people think you are. Uh, you might be stronger than most halflings, but you're definitely not as smart. And you have to now either go around and step on anthills, be okay with that for the rest of your Instead life. Instead of cities. Yeah. <laughs> or you can find some adventurers to join... If you're a PC, here's a good way to play an evil character in a good campaign 
that you have to prove that you're you've turned from your evil ways. You can continue to return to that wizard and be like, "Am I done yet?" Yeah. <laughs> but I think this is my next character in your campaign, Chris. Just so you know, <laughs> if, as long as you allow dies. it, I totally want to be a the cursed half. So your resurrection fund that you've been making hill for Bokov is no longer. Giant. I don't know if I said half giant, but hill giant. My last one. I love dwarves. I will always love dwarves. It was the first one that I wasn't forced to play. There's a soft spot for dwarves in my heart, and I've always wondered what it would be like to be a dwarf who has never come out of his mountain. Like, if he was, like, I think of, like, the stories of Siddhartha Gautama, who was, like, sheltered for his whole life, you know, and then he saw a poor person and got down off of his throne that was being paraded around the city and found out about all of the, like, terrible things that were going on in the world. So think of, like, what would it be like if you were a dwarf who never came out of his mountain and is exploring everything above ground for, like, the very first time. Yeah. Like, has never seen, never seen a tree, never mm-hmm. seen, like, a river. I mean, he's seen, like, underground water, but, like, never seen, like, a lake, never seen, like, any of this. Never seen the outside of his own mountain before. Like, right. what the heck is this mountain thing that we're in, you know? So yeah. I think that would be really interesting because you, you could find characters who hear for the first time, you're like, what the heck are you? Mm-hmm. Can I follow you guys around for a little while? Like, figure mm-hmm. out what's going on? And then, yeah. like, every single thing he's going on, it's just, like, it's like this kid for the first time discovering everything. Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And that way, like, I am I would classify myself as, like, an actor or a story type person where it's, like, I'm going to be so involved in everything trying to figure out what's going on in this world for the very first time. So I, that would be my number one, is doing that That's type sweet. of idea. I don't want to be quoted on this because I'm not sure if I'm right. It might be Dragon Age lore. I'm not sure what lore it is. Yeah. But there's a, you, you know what I'm talking about? I do. Uh, I was thinking the same there, thing. There's uh so I'll we'll I'll be quoted on it then. In Dragon Age lore, the game like when dwarves go outside for the first time and uh, I guess in history or whatever if they've been like in that situation, they get so scared and like want to like clutch the ground cuz they think they're just going to start the sky is so yep. they've only oh, lived yeah. in places with ceilings. So the idea of a sky, they like clutch on the ground thinking that they're just going to be pulled up and like <laughs> never stop. You could bring like yeah. everything is different on the and there's surface. Like a, there's a group of them that that uh, were banished or something and live on the surface yeah. and they're used to it and they can't go back, I think. I also don't want to be quoted. I think I got that right. But like um <laughs> Uh, yeah, that whole, they do a really good job of focusing on, like, what is that? What would that be like? You can just see, like, that it's like the opposite of the fear of falling, right? Yeah. It's not fear of falling down. It's a fear that you're going to be sucked into space. Like, yeah. what is like what is possibly keeping me? Thing. Oh, yeah, Shel Silverstein. Falling up. Falling, falling up. up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I love that idea. Yeah. I like I like that idea. So, might cool. be my next character I play in your okay. world. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Well, we can both uh, agree on our next character. And I get to play a dwarf again. So, you know. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to tell uh, min-maxing Magic Mark that I'm going to play a hill giant in your next campaign. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, <laughs> I want to yeah. be a hill giant. Awesome. Well, that that was our uh, light bulb for you guys. We hope that you enjoyed it. So thank you, uh, Rich, for joining us again on this edition of the Dungeon yeah, Master's so Block. Much. We had a, we had a absolute blast talking with Bet. you about being one of the players, like how to become a better player. If they want to share stories with you about anything and everything related to being a player, where where could they reach you at? So you can get me at uh, rich at richhowardauthor.com. Also, you can get a hold of me through uh, tribality.com as well. Uh, I think if you just send a message to info at tribality.com and uh, just put in the um, 
the subject line, like who you want to talk to, whether it's me okay. or JM or Sean, that'll all work. Cool. Well, if you, like I said, if you have stories, send them over to Rich. He would love to respond with you and talk with you about those things as well. And if you have any stories as well, we would love to hear them. And you can reach us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. You can send, if you have a longer story, or even if you want to record the story and send it to us, we would love to listen to it or, or uh, read through it as well. And if you, if you have some spare time, you love what you hear here, go over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We would love to keep getting those reviews, and, and the more reviews we get, the more people see that, oh, there's something actually going on here, and we can help more people be better DMs and players after this episode as well. Uh, you can also find us on Stitcher. We're on there. Are you following us on Twitter? If you're not, what's wrong with you? It's at DMS underscore block. How many times do I need to say this? At DMs block on Twitter. Like our <laughs> Facebook page as well. I'm tired of telling you guys. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's so loving and encouraging. I know. Before we go, uh, as we have done in every episode that we've had a Patreon to share, we have another one. And this week, our Patreon shout-out goes to... Andrew Babcock! Babcock. Yeah, hey. thank you so much, Andrew. Andrew is a platinum dragon, high as you can be. Thank you so much for all of your support. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. We appreciate it so much, Andrew. Without any further ado, we're going to close out this episode, and we just want to say thank you again for listening to the Players Block today, formerly known as the Dungeon Masters <laughs> Block, where we focus on the player, the most important person at the table, the only person able to create heroic characters bring memorable stories to life, and undermine any DM's well-laid plans. Have a good night, everyone. Keep on Dungeon Mastering. Goodbye.